What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello everybody and welcome. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome back to The Iron List. This is a podcast where we do lists. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic and uh, you don't have to give me a cute nickname. I just am who I am. And that's all that you am. And uh, yeah, this is uh, The Iron List. Uh, every month on The Iron List, we ask our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network to give us a topic. We provide them a few possibilities and then they vote. And then we each do, Whitney and Seibold and I, uh, our competitive top ten lists in that topic. We do not discuss the lists ahead of time. We do not even necessarily share the criteria it's usually just a general topic, and if we want to whittle it down further or make it more specific, we can. And, uh, yeah, then we just rattle them off, and then we see how we do. And usually there's a lot less overlap than I expect. Mm. I'm not sure if this is going to be the case this time, because I'm not sure how uh, how much of an expert we are in this particular genre. This time on The Iron List, we are talking about the best legal thrillers ever. Uh, and now this is a bit of a broad topic. Uh, it's not just... Any movie with crime, it's a movie specifically dealing with issues of the law. Typically, the, this will the, be a movie the, about lawyers. Sometimes the criminal be, justice system in it, general. It might be about lawyers. It might be about jurors. It might be about people who are defendants in a complicated court case. Uh, but it is specifically revolving around the court itself and the legal system. Not just, like, cops catching guys and that's the legal system because they're cops. Basically, we're looking at the second half of the Law & Order episode, <laughs> not the first half. The uh, the law part oh. is what we're looking at. Uh, and um, I think that's kind of all I got, really. I, I, there's a couple of uh, films on my list that uh, are maybe going to stretch the definition of legal thriller... Uh, beyond what we consider to be sort of like the John Grisham realm, <laughs> right? Uh, of which, of which there are many, and I grew up with a lot of John Grisham movies. So don't be surprised if more than one makes my list. Uh, but uh, Winnie, have any thoughts on the on the genre um, or, or on the criteria before we get started? Uh, I have one that's like tangentially legal. I didn't mm. want to choose just any movie about a lawyer or a judge. Sure. Um, that said, I think if you wanted to include something like Marshall or on, oh, the, yeah. ba- on the basis of sex mm-hmm. or you know, like a movie about a judge. I, th- I think in those cases, what you're dealing Well, first off, those are stories about judges back when they were lawyers. Uh-huh. But also those are specifically because they're about cases and the suspense surrounding the outcome of the case. Mm-hmm. I think the, that the fact that there is suspense makes them legal thrillers, yeah. not just legal movies. I think there has to be an element of suspense. I think that's got to be relevant. Even if it's a historical film and we know how it turns out, there's even in a historical film you're expected to, you know, because people at the time don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. So you want to play up at least some suspense. Someone in the audience doesn't know the, the, the full story of this court case. So, uh, so yeah. And, um, uh, I also disqualified films that 
climax with a court case, but isn't about the courts otherwise. Yeah, I think that's fair. There, there's a, a few... Um, hmm. I, I really wish there was an Air Bud film that like, ended in court. <laughs> like the clipboard pr- guy on the stand. Like, But it clearly says right here that dogs aren't allowed to play basketball. But when you walked onto that field, you said the dogs, there's no rule that says they can't. And the guy's like, I never learned how to read. <laughs> Breaks down. Got him. How many points did you score? <laughs> Get out of my courtroom. Get out of my sight. <laughs> Bailiff Club the dog. Oh, uh, Jesus. So it's over, far yeah. there. <laughs> Air Bud got a little dark there. Yeah. Uh, so but Air, Bud, Air Bud does conclude with a court case. The original Air Bud mm. concludes with the court case over who actually owns the dog. The kid yeah. or the or abusive a... party clown. Mm. That's a weird fucking movie, by the way. But uh, it does end in the court case. But the court case is like the last 10, 20 minutes. Yeah, again, but that's yeah. a movie that I wouldn't call Air Bud a legal thriller. No, I wouldn't either. I think I, I, I think that's true with anything we, we do. When, you, when something earns a label... Mm. Uh, it has to actually do the work. You don't get to like um, have like if if I do a romantic comedy about uh, people who own sandwich shops uh-huh. on the same block who fall in love, and one of the regular customers who shows up in like two and a half scenes is a cop. I'm not going to call it a cop movie. <laughs> it's just that guy. That guy has a job. Like it's not a thing. So these will be movies that focus on the legal realm. To one extent or another, don't, they don't all have to entirely take place in a courtroom, but they focus on the legal realm, and there. And I think there needs to be at least some element of suspense. Mm. Beyond that, we might be a little loosey goosey. We might not uh, uh, pick all the films that you are thinking of. And um, on that note, the only mm. other thing I'll say is for anyone who is new, the way Whitney and I do top ten lists, it's a little different from most people. We do not rank them. We don't, we don't count down 10 to 1. Because it's irrelevant. We we don't think that you need to see the number 8 film on our list less than the number 7 film on our list. We want you to see every single film on this list. The only difference is we do think that our number 1 should mean <coughs> something. So yeah. we'll save our number 1, the movie that if we were put to the test and said, hey, what's the best legal thriller ever made? We'll save that for last. That's our number one. Our number one is our number one. But number two through ten, it's a tie for second. It just yeah, we're yeah. just talking about them in the order in which we happen to talk about them. Uh, on that note, Whitney, would you like to yeah. go first? Sure. Um, uh, why don't I start with the one that uh, is the most arguable? Interesting. Okay. It's, I'm uh, curious because it's about people in a desperate legal situation, hmm. but it's more about their interplay outside of the courtroom. Uh, and I'm talking about the film Changing Lanes from 2002. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, this is about uh, huh. Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, Great movie. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm curious your argument here. Okay. Oh, it's, it's an excellent movie. Yeah, Samuel, people, people do not talk about this movie enough. Yeah, Samuel L. Jackson plays uh, a, a, f- a recovering alcoholic who is on his way to court in order to uh, argue that he's clean. He's clean. Mm-hmm. He's been sober uh, long enough, mm-hmm. uh, legally, yeah. for him to uh, gain joint custody of his kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he can't appear in court, that proves he's irresponsible. Yeah, he has to appear in court. And if you've ever appeared in court, you have to appear on time. Yeah. That is expected yeah. of you. Yeah. Uh, and driving on the same highway, this is in New York, uh, driving on the same highway is Ben Affleck. And he's... Uh, a very shady, wealthy, hotshot lawyer guy mm-hmm. who is also on his way to court 
And he's up to something kind of no good. Like he's trying to prove, and we're not sure how true it is, that some rich guy signed all of his property over to the law firm. Yeah. And uh, wouldn't you know it, while they're in separate cars on the highway, uh, I think it's Ben Affleck like tries to change lanes, cuts he, like, them he, off, like, cuts them and off. runs them off the road. And, yeah. And, uh, the, and I think the car breaks down. Yeah, basically, uh, because, because of... Ben Affleck, they're both trying to get to court. Ben mm. Affleck decides that he's more important than anyone else on the road. He cuts off some random guy. And as a result, through no fault of his own, Samuel L. Jackson cannot make his court date in time. Mm. And even though he did all the work and he's trying to be a good person, and he, and he even tries to like stop and say, hey, listen, let's get our insurance in. Like, I, I, right I need to do the right thing. He's and, trying to do the right and thing. In and in fact, he, he even says that. It's like, I, I can't skip I can't Ben Affleck tries to give him money and says yeah. here's some money I'll, we'll just split and he, he's like the money I can't I know I need to do this the right way this is my yeah. this is the the whole rice on debt that I'm here I have to do yeah. everything correctly so I can get my sons and uh Ben and Affleck, ben Affleck says yeah. uh says very damningly better luck next time uh-huh. and drives off yeah. and, and as a result yeah. and as a result Samuel Jackson doesn't get custody of his kids which sets in motion a series of petty revenges between them that continue to escalate and escalate mm. and escalate to, over the course of the to the, the film. point where they both realize and here's what I like about changing lanes it's yeah. it's it's staged like a thriller but it's more about moral depravity. It is. It's yeah. these petty revenges. They both realize from the jump aren't getting them anything. It's not fixing the situation. It's not even really making mm. them feel better. Mm. They just are tr- are so outraged by all of this that they feel mm. like they need to do something to to rec- you know, rectify the situation. Yeah. Uh, this was one of those movies that was made uh, prior to 9-11 and released after. Yeah. And it feels like a post-9-11 movie. This mm. kind of idea that the world is just gonna fuck you. Yeah. And, uh, and... There's no... There's nothing... Nothing is right. There is no justice. Mm. And we're we're all responding uh, to the fact that the world is traumatized and it's trickling down to us. Yeah. 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 So, it, it just... Thematically, it happened to be, mm. you know, fit in this neat little niche. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson uh, also has like some papers of Ben Affleck's and is kind of holding them hostage uh, and, you know, is threatened to destroy these very important things that would get him a lot of money. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Ben Affleck, uh, you know, when he realizes what's going on, does even worse things. Like he tries to ruin uh, um, Samuel L. Jackson's credit. Yeah. Like he calls and ruins his credit. And he, he realizes that he's always been kind of shady and he's really kind of getting increasingly comfortable with being a, an even more terrible person. Yeah, and he's actually starting to question for the very first time if he wants to mm. be that. And yeah. And in in an excellent scene by uh, actress Amanda Peet, mm-hmm. incredibly underrated actress. Very underrated. Uh she plays his wife. Now, he's been pretty pretty brazenly having an affair with Tony with Collette, Tony Collette. who is amazing in this movie. Yeah. Should have been Oscar nominated. She's fantastic <laughs> in this. And there's a really excellent speech where uh, Amanda Peet pretty much like brings him to a diner, sits him down, and says, "You know what? I know that you've been having an affair, mm-hmm. and I'm also having an affair, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where I want us to be." Yeah, I, this is the life that we're choosing. That we, we're choosing, we're, or, we're choosing our to values, be, and this is what we value. Yeah, yeah, and 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 this isn't like a oh, like we're going to change the boundaries of our relationship in an open, yeah. trusting kind of way. No, it's about we're going to continue to deceive each other. Yeah, and we're going to lie about what we're it's, doing. It's kind of like Gone Girl, but without like the bed full of blood. Like we don't actually have to get to that <laughs> point. Yeah, she, we're just going to have yeah. the conversation before it gets there. And she has yeah. the, the sort of moral stance. It's like we are not 
moral people, you and I, mm-hmm. and I'm okay with that. And I'm surprised you don't realize mm-hmm. how awful you are, Ben Affleck. Yeah. And, uh, and the, yeah, it's like this sort of realization moment. Do mm-hmm. I be, do I do the right thing or do I be horrible? And I'm not going to spoil the ending for you. No, no, it's, but it's um, great though. Like I said, not quite a legal thriller because yeah. it's not about the criminal justice system, but it is about uh, how trying to operate outside of the law mm-hmm. is, you know, as a lawyer or as a citizen, mm-hmm. is only going to breed like contempt and resentment. Well, it's, it's also about it's also about the uh, the resentment that comes from trying to operate within the law and getting screwed over by people who just decide not to. Yeah, um, I think. Personally, hmm. um, I I would argue that this is not strictly a legal thriller. However, uh, I, I would really only take this away from you if, if you said it was your number one. No, I would be no, like, this is not a... this is not typical of the genre in hmm. any meaningful way. Uh, this other, is definitely on the, this is definitely a lawyer, at yeah. least on the periphery. This is at hmm. least on the periphery of a it's, legal film. But it's one I really it, wanted to recommend. It's a fantastic. Anything, I yeah. wish I thought of it. I love this movie. People do not talk about this movie mm. enough. I think this is low key, maybe not top ten, but maybe in like the top twenty five best movies of the two thousands. It's, it's yeah, a, it, exceptionally it one good. Of, one of the best films of that yeah. year. Yeah, uh, and yeah, it, it, it's one of those films that looks like oh, it's just this sort of like thriller, this cat and mouse game. Yeah, well, you look watch the previews and it doesn't look very. Interesting. It, it, it looks like okay, but, but it, it looks like you can miss it safely. It, it actually know? delves pretty deep into some pretty yeah. dark territory, uh, and I, I really love it. I loved it at the yeah. time. I, I still love it. I, I think this is this is kind of typical of the kind of thriller we used to get more in the nineties. Yeah, where they would be thrillers about adults caring and thinking about adult things. Uh, and we don't get enough of those anymore, and we definitely yeah, don't get enough yeah. of them in theaters. And this is one of the better mature thrillers mm. we've had, I think, in this last century. Changing Lanes, absolutely. Th- thank you for recommending it. <laughs> like I said, I'm going to let it go. I do think it's at best scratching the periphery, mm. but that's why, that's why I started go. with this. It's yeah. The, the rest of mine are all pretty unambiguously legal yeah. thrillers, but. Um, Fair enough. Well, I, I've got a few that are more in like sort of the art house realm that are, are about the legal system, but maybe they wouldn't usually be called legal thrillers. But I don't mm. want to start there. I actually want to start with, I usually reserve my 10 spot for a movie that I don't think most other people would pick. Mm. A movie like, like Changing Lanes that I just I want an excuse to talk about because I think it's really, really good. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, a movie that maybe some people uh, like, but don't necessarily consider great. And I want you to maybe consider reevaluating it. Okay. Uh, and it's also a film that a lot of legal thrillers, when I was, was growing up, were based on books, and a lot of those legal thrillers were airplane novels. Yeah. yeah. They're pulpy crime thrillers about amoral people pulling one over on each other and doing, like, <laughs> big dramatic, you know, twists and turns in court and stuff. And there's a lot of good movies on that, and there's a few others that I have on my list. But the, the one that is probably, like, the sleaziest film on my list, <laughs> like, the sleaziest court thriller, but it knows it, and it embraces it, and I think it is actually very, very good. Mm. I'm going to go with Gregory Hoblet's Primal Fear. Okay. Primal Fear is that's, that's a pulp. The, that's, yeah. That's, it's an airplane novel it's a pulp, pulp movie. Pot boiler. But if ever it there is was exceptionally one. well made. And mm-hmm. I think within that framework, it is exceptionally well made. Uh, Primal Fear was uh, a pretty modest hit in 1996. It was Edward Norton's first movie. Mm-hmm. He got an Oscar nomination for it because, boy, is this like one of the great 
who the fuck is that guy first movies I've ever seen? Yeah, like, yeah. I, you watch this movie and you're just like, oh yeah, it's Edward Norton. He's been around forever. No, wait, he's never been in a movie before. He's so damn talented. Who is this kid? Um, the movie is about uh, Richard Gere. He is an unscrupulous uh, defense attorney. Uh, and in, I think it's Chicago, if you remember. Yeah, it's Chicago. Okay. Uh, there's like a deacon... Or, you know, it's an archbishop. An archbishop is brutally murdered. And they, the police catch uh, a not very bright young kid who was working at the church who they decide did it. And even though there's no money in it, it's going to be the case of the year. Uh-huh. And Richard Gere says, I want the celebrity that comes with this. I want to be the center of attention. And even though I can't make any money off of this, this will get me more work later. I am taking this case. So he's like the best lawyer in town and he's going to defend this nobody Mm. who is completely out of his league. And he's up against in another, like not, not her first movie by any stretch of the imagination, but this was like a big breakout. Now she's getting big roles. Uh, Laura Lenny plays the DA. She'd been in smaller roles until then. Wasn't she already kind of a bigger star she was, by, she was, by 96? People, people knew who she was, but she yeah. was in, like, she was just recently, like, playing, like, the teacher in three scenes and things. I think she was, oh, okay. this was, like, a big, like, oh, she's going to be bigger or, now. What's that series of mini, like, TV miniseries she did? I don't um, know. It was, like, like, Stories of the City or something like that. Oh, was it Amistad Mopan's Tales of the City? Yeah, that's the one. Tales, okay, I didn't, tales, okay, I didn't see that. But, but this is a movie, but um, it's a different thing. But yeah, fair yeah. enough. Um, the, I think those preceded this. Yeah. Uh, anyway, great cast. It's also got Alfred Woodard, Francis McDormand, John Mahoney. Awesome cast. Over the course of the film, he discovers that this kid probably did it. Like, he's almost definitely did it. And then he discovers that the kid has multiple personalities and one of them doesn't know he did it. <laughs> and now he's in a position in, where he's that, that in is, a very movie way. Yeah, the movie version of multiple it's d- a movie, dissociative it's, it's, it's identity not, disorder. It's not, good, it's not good medicine and it's definitely not a flattering depiction mm-hmm. in, because they're presented as a murderer. However, they also talk about a lot of corruption in the church and this, and this archbishop was involved in some horrible sex crimes. Like, it's sleazy. Yeah. It is a sleazy, gross film. But it is a film about sleazy, gross people. And the way that Richard Gere, he's so perfectly cast in this. Because in the 90s, mm. he had kind of like made his image into being everyone's favorite hunk. Yeah. You know, he was in Pretty Woman. He was in Runaway Bride. He was in, uh, he played Lancelot in First Night. Remember that shit? Remember when he played Lancelot? It didn't even bother with an accent. Just didn't even like Kevin Costner didn't have to bother. Why should Richard Gere? That movie's fucking weird. Anyway, um, he's it's, it's actually like pretty, it's a, pretty, pretty entertaining movie. I, but, yeah. I, you like it a lot more than I do. Uh, not, not I like lo- I like the American Ni- I like the American Ninja segment where like in order to prove like his worth to King Sean Connery, hmm. not even Arthur, just Sean Connery, King Sean Connery, he, he has to run through this like ridiculous double dare gauntlet of axes and shit, and I'm like, yeah, you know, like they had. Um, but anyway, he's playing he's playing off of his type, he's playing against his type, he's just playing like this hmm. guy who there's a great gag he does in it where, um, in order to show just how innocent his client is, he pleads the fifth for pleading guilty or not guilty. I refuse to plead guilty or not guilty because it implies that he has any knowledge of the crime. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, it's just 
total weird stunt move. But it's the kind of thing that it's just like, it looks good. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? He's just such a sleazebag. Anyway, um, I like this movie a lot. It is, again, not a great depiction of multiple personalities. There's twists in it where maybe that will be mitigated to you. Maybe it won't. It's your call. Uh, but it's a great acting showcase. It's wonderfully mean. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's an airplane novel movie. I think it's one of the better airplane novel legal thrillers. All right. Well, I got a nice sleazy movie too. Ooh. It's about a sleazy lawyer Ooh. who's working for an even sleazier lawyer. He's a sleazy Florida man who goes to the big city and is tempted into a big, big evil, evil. Oh, you did! I did. This this is Taylor Hackford's The Devil's Advocate. Oh my god! I thought oh. I couldn't bring myself to put this <laughs> because it is so I, sleazy. But it is. It's exactly that vibe, though. It's yeah, exactly yeah. the same vibe as Primal Fear, but but with stupider. a supernatural twist. It's stupider because Al Pacino plays Satan, literally, literally like supernatural <laughs> the devil. Oh my uh, god! Brilliant casting, yeah, and brilliant it, casting, and he's great, and he's got, yeah. he has this like rant at the end of the movie where he's just yeah. talking about you know, God is up there laughing his sick fucking ass. So it's like, oh, thank you, Al Pacino, <laughs> thank you for just swinging for the walls. Uh, yeah, Keanu Reeves, uh, never worse, has uh, <laughs> playing a playing a slick southern lawyer, s- slick with, southern lawyer with you know like Keanu Reeves can play. The, <laughs> One of the most horrendous accents. He's balanced uh, well by a uh, then relatively unknown Charlize Theron. Yeah, she playing his wife. Kind yeah. of rising to fame at that yeah. point. This is a this is a good breakout role for her too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this one and that film, Two Days in the Valley. I think it was her really first movie. Two Days in the Valley. It was, yeah. Um, yeah. Those. She has, she has she has an awesome fight in that movie with Terry Hatcher. Where they're just beating the shit out of each other. Like, it's like, uh, damn. In Two Days in the Valley, she plays, like, sort of this criminal mall character. It's like James Spader who plays a criminal in a very Pulp Fiction-y kind of way. Yeah, this this was one of the many, many Pulp Fiction knockoffs. Uh, And you think that she's just going to be sort of this, like, side character, but then... Like, her role grows as the movie goes on, and she gets shot, and she's, like, bleeding for half of the movie. Uh, Yeah, she's really good in that movie. She's good in Devil's Advocate. Mm. Um... Uh, Keanu Reeves' mom is like this ultra sort of conservative Christian character who uh, warns him about going to the big city. You don't want to go to the big city. I went once and it was awful and it was terrible <laughs> and I, was, I had my heart broken by this horrible man. Foreshadowing. Uh, foreshadowing a bit. Yeah, it, nothing is not obvious <laughs> in this movie. Uh, oh, the opening scene, by the way, it's uh, he to highlight how horrible he is. Mm-hmm. He's a defense attorney for a man who's been accused of molesting students. Oh, God. I and, forgot about and that And the part. student is played by Heather Matarazzo. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, she was still, I think she was still only a teenager at that point. But Yeah, yeah it was around um, the time Welcome to the Dollhouse came out. Yeah, uh, it was just a couple years after. Yeah. And so, but, uh, and he knows that this guy's guilty. Mm-hmm. And the guy is like being lascivious and gross in court, oh. and, and he decides to just defend him anyway. And so that's <sighs> that's how to establish that he's a horrible guy. I mean, because he does so well at defending horrible people, ugh. he's uh, targeted by Satan. <laughs> that is Al Pacino's law firm. Yeah. Uh, what what is? Do you remember his name? Al Pacino's. Oh, what is pseudonym? it? What is it like Louis Cipher? Is no, it? no, no, wait, that's that's Angel Heart. That's what Angel is Heart. It? What is it? It's it's John Milton. He calls himself John Milton. Oh, well, that's in yeah. in, in that fucking cute. Yeah, is it, they're being so precious. <laughs> God. And uh That would that would be like in like 100 years if oh. Satan was like on earth and his name was Al Pacino. Like <laughs> right. that's that's what we're talking about here. Uh so yeah, John Milton says, "Come work for me. I need you to defend 
my my satanic people, and mm. uh, so that's what he does. He comes to the court and he proves that how how willing he is to sort of skirt moral lines in order to get people off in in court. And and of course, Satan is doing strange things like casting spells and uh, <laughs> like people are like being chased by ghosts and that he is also using like these weird demonic presences to drive Charlize Theron insane. Yeah. And so like she, because Satan wants, wants him to end up with one of his like demon groupies, one of his demon groupies. Many demon groupies. Yeah. He's, he's got a demon groupie. Like, what is like, like, isn't one like Saffron Burroughs? It's Saffron Burroughs yeah. is the one he's trying to hook, yeah. hook him up with. Yeah. Uh, so there's this, <laughs> unbelievably campy sequence where you can see her going like further down the pit of madness by not being able to decide what shade of green to paint her apartment. <laughs> yeah. and, and they play it in this like really dynamic way. And she's like painting over the camera and it's like yeah. all this time. It's like, it's like and... she's stuck in like a shitty Rosemary's baby. Yeah. And he's stuck in a shitty, like satanic panic movie. Yeah. Well, and, and... I guess that's Rosemary's baby too. But anyway, you're like, they're, they're, they're slightly <laughs> different films. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's constantly tempting uh, him with to more work so he can neglect his wife. And also with like, uh, there's all this like sex and immorality floating around. And of course, it all climaxes with him finally coming out and saying, I am Satan. Your wife is insane. I need mm. you to do my bidding. <laughs> yeah. And the sculpture behind him comes to life and it's all magical and shit. Uh, yeah. It, it's. It's a movie that you feel kind of unclean watching. Yeah. Like, you don't want to see it in public because it's, like, it's almost inviting you to do unsavory things it's, in the theater. I remember when this movie came out, and mm. every... And Taylor Hackford's a pretty well-respected filmmaker. He's yeah. made some very good movies. He made Ray. Uh, he's unabashedly making something cheap and sleazy, but very expensive, and with a very classy cast. Mm. And I remember when this movie came out, a lot of film critics that I was reading at the time just kind of had to throw up their hands and just say, this is absolute bullshit, but it's made really well. We kind of can't <laughs> help but enjoy it, even though it's clearly just schmaltzy. Like, mm. what's the opposite of schmaltz? Like, what's the horror version of schmaltz? <laughs> Whatever the horror L- version of lurid, schmaltz. Lurid, yeah. It's just this lurid... Crap fest, like this incredibly obvious, like uh, like it's so obvious. You're mad at Keanu Reeves for not immediately assuming this guy is Satan. Oh. Here's a guy who's at least like in his late twenties or thirties at this point, and he's lived his entire life not knowing that magic was real. The second Al Pacino walks up to him, he should just be like, "Oh, Satan is real, and you're him." <laughs> yeah, not literally, yeah. like that's not a metaphor. You're actually yeah. saying that's how obvious it is. Uh-huh. And, and yet, and, it's weirdly compelling. Like, yeah, it's, it's, like I said, Keanu Reeves yeah. gets a pretty bad performance in this movie. Yes, he does. He, he like, can be good. He he in the right role. He can yeah. he can be fine if he's asked to play yeah. a a role that's a lot like Keanu Reeves. He does mm-hmm. a good job. Uh, or if he's asked to be funny, which he isn't asked to be enough. That, uh, that's true. I love you to death. Funny. Hilarious, mm. hilarious, and I love you to death. Or uh, um, I didn't see what was the one where he played himself. And oh, went, uh, uh, always be my maybe. That yeah, one. I mean, yeah, he's very funny in that. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw I saw his scene, and he's very yeah. funny in that. Scene. Yeah, that's a good movie. Actually, I like um, the movie. In, in the Devil's Advocate, he's asked to smoke cigarettes. Mm-hmm. That's one of the the signs that he's falling. He's fallen yeah. off the wagon. He's gone back to cigarettes. Keanu Reeves looks like he's never seen a cigarette before. Like the yeah. way he kind of like throws <laughs> it into his mouth and pulls it out. It's like it's like what is this? I'm like 
it's it's like he's been asked to like suck on an animal which of is some kind. weird because i've seen him smoke in other movies i remember when that movie feeling minnesota like mm. he taught himself a trick where you fling a cigarette up in the air and you catch it in your mouth okay and he would do it in like one shot so i know he knows of cigarettes mm. so it's it it's campy trash yeah the devil's advocate and i think it's kind of unapologetically campy trash oh sure it, it knows exactly what it's doing but you know yeah. sometimes i like campy trash i got so no, there you know is. what I, can't, I i i came very close to putting it on my list and i just like ah there are other movies i'd rather talk about but <laughs> right. i'm glad you did because okay. it's but and speaking of the 90s the 90s was a heyday for legal thrillers they were very they were best selling books and many of them were written by John Grisham. John Grisham wrote a series of legal thrillers which very rapidly became like this Stephen King kind of Hollywood hit machine. Yeah. Where like five or six movies in a row, um, even if they weren't very good, they made a lot of money. However, some of them were very good. Well, John, John Grisham was tapping into... Uh... I don't know how the trend really began, if it was just with John Grisham or if there was just this increased interest in lawyer shows and movies. Well, there but, definitely were already lawyer um, shows, and there had been for a John, while. John Grisham, a very important figure uh, <laughs> until he kind of, I think he kind of got overexposed. Yeah. Uh, like, it was too much John Grisham too quickly, so we kind of rejected him after well, a while. And I think, but, we, I think we figured out his shtick. Yeah. And his movies but, uh, got kind of samey, and then they started attracting less talented people, and they just started being not as good. Yeah. Uh, Grisham himself uh, was a lawyer, and yeah. he just decided to write legal thrillers that paid closer attention to legal accuracy. Yes. And that was that was novel at the time. So yeah. he wrote a series of these hit New York Times mm. bestsellers. Yeah, often very dramatically uh, clunky, melodramatic, but yeah. the legality the, of it was yeah. actually surprisingly for the genre pretty thorough. Yeah. My favorite John Grisham novel is the one about the young lawyer who uncovers a conspiracy. Uh, <laughs> that's the joke, joke is that's there are the, many. Of that's them. the plot of all of them. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I actually have a couple of different John Grisham thrillers that are on my list, which yeah, is I, just I, which, I, I kept it down to one. <laughs> I, I'm I, I'm curious which one you picked. Uh, I picked a couple, and I honestly like I tried to rein it in, but there's actually three that oh I felt gosh. I actually felt like legitimately they're all made by different people. And I think they're all genuinely good films. Okay. And I think they're all actually great examples of the legal thriller genre. And I actually left out one that a lot of people like. I'm curious if it's the one you picked. But let's start with a movie that I think is a little underrated. But in my experience from uh, talking to people who are lawyers or uh, you know watching videos about people exploring movies through a legal lens... Uh, this is generally considered to be one of the most legally accurate movies ever made, and that is The Rainmaker. I like The Rainmaker a lot. That's, not, that's not my choice, but I, I yeah. came close. Um, so, there's a couple of films. Yeah, Francis Ford Coppola, who in the 90s was struggling. Like, Bram Stoker's Dracula did really well, but he, he was not, not making not a lot a, of hits. Not a great movie. Maybe but, not a great uh, movie, but it did made money. Yeah. It was a successful motion picture. It won, it won an Academy Award mm. for, I think, costume design. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but he just, he wasn't, he wasn't getting the projects that he wanted. Jack, let us never speak of it. Uh, although it made him a lot of money, it kept him on the map. And he's very great. He's said before he's very grateful for Jack. But, uh, The Rainmaker was a movie that he kind of quietly made. And at the time it was like, oh, Coppola's just doing a Grisham novel now. Well, good for Grisham. Yeah. <laughs> Sad for Coppola. But Coppola actually brought it and made a really, really good legal thriller. The Rainmaker stars Matt Damon. This is right when he was starting to come out of like the Goodwill hunting phase and get mm -hmm. like big roles. Um 
He plays a young lawyer uh, who is swept up not by like a really awesome legal firm, but just by like a hole in the wall shitty legal firm run by Mickey Rourke. <laughs> Back when it was not a good time to be Mickey Rourke. This is actually a pretty good role for 90s Mickey Rourke. Uh, and uh, yeah, he ends up taking on a case from a family with no money to speak of. And they are suing an insurance company for basically denying very reasonable health care to someone who was dying, I think, of leukemia or something similar. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. like a, a civil case. Yeah, it was. A, it was a, so basically, we're just suing them because you denied care and mm. this person died and there was no reason for you to do so. You just killed our son, essentially. Mm. Uh, and it's the kind of case where that insurance company has millions, possibly billions of dollars to throw at this. All they really have to do is get a handful of high-priced lawyers to basically shut down this amateurish kid. This is his first case he's ever tried. And that's going to be the end of this. They're just going to stonewall him and force him to take a shitty plea deal and then this will all be over. But through sheer force of will... And an actually good understanding of the law, they are able to keep villainous John Voight, good casting, like actually on his toes throughout the whole movie. And they do it through actual good application of the law that actually holds up to legal scrutiny, which I think gives the movie a few bonus points. Because <laughs> it's hard, it, most people don't bother because no. it gets in the way of the thrills. Yeah. Uh, but it, it manages to do that without feeling. Like uh, like a textbook, it actually does just feel like we're actually just paying attention to detail in that almost Michael Mann kind of way, where like we're just really well, and, and it's made by I've, people uh, who clearly actually know what they're talking about, and it feels so much more real and plausible as a result. Uh, and th this was, um, you know, Matt Damon at the time was yeah. uh, because he was coming off of Goodwill Hunting. It was a little bit typecast, and in fact, he still plays roles like this. Look at The Martian, yeah. uh, the the guy who's good at something. Yeah, that that's the guy that who's was surprisingly Matt, bright. That that was a shtick for a while yeah. because of Goodwill Hunting, and uh, this is the loyal lawyer version of that, mm -hmm. which means uh, the presence of Matt Damon denotes that the filmmakers are paying attention mm -hmm. and they want this guy to look and sound smart and mm -hmm. like have an actual intelligent arc. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know it, it does. Yeah, it works great. It actually has all of those details in it. I, mm -hmm. I've said before that I love movies that talk shop mm -hmm. and get a lot of details right, even if I'm lost. Yeah. If I buy that they believe the language, I kind of get what they're talking about. Um uh, David Mamet is a great screenwriter in this regard. He likes to yeah. just sort of trade banter, like in, uh, mm. industry banter. Yeah. I, Look at Glenn Gary, Glenn <clears throat> Ross. It's, mm. it's about, uh, seriously, maybe the most mind-numbingly dull mm. job in the world. Yeah. And it's a riveting movie because we're completely immersed in it. Yeah, if, even when you get to something like State and Maine, which is a comedy. Yeah. Um, very funny movie, by the way. Oh, like that's, that's underrated. I like that movie. Uh, that, that's all about filmmaking. But it's this sort of com this farce about filmmaking. Uh, yeah, the Rainmaker uh, has all those details, and it it's not like a lot of John Grisham's movies. Mm -hmm. Aggressively dour. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of John Grisham uh, thrillers are about sort of the failings or the cracks in the legal system, yeah. and how uh, how there's a lot of corruption mm -hmm. just sort of slithering through all of it. The Rainmaker is just a little bit more straightforward. That one yeah. and the Runaway Jury mm -hmm. are movies where justice prevails, and it's actually a very upbeat yeah. movie. And, and what I like about Rainmaker mm -hmm. is that a, a lot of the John Grisham movies that everyone likes, like a movie that didn't make my list, mm -hmm. I'm curious if it's one you pick, but uh, A Time to Kill, which mm -hmm. was a big smash hit, made Matt, Matthew McConaughey a big star. 
That thing was huge. It was gigantic. It was a freight train. And it's a perfectly good movie. Like it's, but it's incredibly melodramatic and sensationalistic. And I guess the material kind of warrants it in that case. But that's not what the Rainmaker is about. It's not about a flashy case. Mm. It's about a case where there's a lot riding on it. But what's riding on it is principle and actually holding corporations accountable for when they Mm. screw over people who don't have the power to fight back, which is what theoretically the legal profession should be about. It's making sure that people are equally represented in a court Mm. of law. And seeing how difficult that is and seeing um, these uh, these people actually, like, fight to... uh, There's a weird, annoying subplot where, like, Matt Damon gets involved in, like, a murder... With like Claire Danes's husband or everything like that. And oh that, gosh, that, that. that's that's oh, that's I, I that, don't even remember that, that part. That, that's yeah. not it. That's the part where the movie kind of just falls falls off the mm. rails a little bit. But whenever it's actually just about the court case, this is just one of the most solid, plausible, and weirdly captivating uh, uh, legal thrillers. I quite like it a lot. Well, what's mm. your what's your next pick? Uh, well, I'll, I'll go with my John Grisham, mm. my one John Grisham pick because uh-huh. I, I don't want to stuff it. I could, yeah, I could have made half of them John Grisham yeah. movies, but uh, it's it's the obvious one. It's Sidney Pollock's The Firm. That's the one I didn't uh, pick. Is it? Oh, yeah, curious. it's a good movie. It's yeah, a good um, movie, but it's the one I didn't pick. I, I think just because it it is the er example of of John Grisham. This was the first big John Grisham hit movie mm-hmm. that kind of spawned all the others. Yeah. Uh, again, then this one also it came out in '93, I think. Uh, there. The same year as Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. and I think it was like the third highest grossing film that year. The Firm mm-hmm. was another monster. It was nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. Holly mm-hmm. Hunter, I think Gene Hackman was nominated for this. Uh, Wasn't he? Gene, Gene Hackman. Yeah, um, Gene Hackman. He plays he plays uh, Tom Cruise's mentor. Yeah, Gene Hackman's I great in this fucking movie. Okay. I love this movie. Hang on, let me double check. I feel like that's right. But yeah, um, this mm-hmm. is about Tom Cruise playing. Uh, he's the young lawyer in this mm-hmm. one. And uh, he's, like, just entering the legal profession. He's, oh, he wasn't nominated. I don't know what I was thinking of. But he okay. is great. Though. Okay. Yeah, I uh, just, he... And it. this is one of those movies where I actually have trouble wrapping my head around the plot. Because it's <laughs> so weirdly labyrinthine. Yeah. And, uh, like, who, who are these people and why are these guys after him and why do they want to corrupt this young mm. lawyer? And uh, th- there's... A, mm. it, it's about Tom Cruise sort of entering the legal profession. He's mm. passing the bar and he's going to go straight into this uh, mm. a law firm. Yeah. And unlike the mm. Rainmaker where he's just stuck in some shitty law firm, mm. he got amazing grades. He's seen as a top prospect and he actually gets swept up by a big, fancy, expensive yeah. law firm. The that, firm. Which yeah, yeah. he gradually realizes is also the law firm for, for example, organized crime. Yeah. It's like uh, yeah. one of the most corrupt organizations and that's yeah. how they've remained wealthy. And, and it takes to, him a long time yeah. to realize the depths of that yeah uh who are these feds on his tail yeah. at one point they uh they uh send a sex worker after him to seduce him even though yeah. he's uh engaged to be married to gene triplehorn well they want they want like blackmail material on him so mm. in case he gets like a crisis of conscience they'd be like now nah, the firm fucking owns you dude yeah like yeah oh i i don't know if i can uh uh you know cover up crimes uh for the mafia and they're like would these pictures of you with a sex worker Make you want to cover up crimes for the mafia, and theoretically he would be like, "Well, yeah, now." But in actuality, Tom Cruise, even though he makes he's what I like about this movie is that Tom Cruise is playing kind of a shithead, especially at the beginning yeah, of the movie. Yeah. He, he is eager to be corrupted. Mm. This is what he wanted. Well, he wanted to be an expensive, flashy lawyer who mm. women throw themselves at. And uh, he, he does. What I think is going on here is that mm. he's he, he's not a great guy. Mm-hmm. It's not that he wants to be evil, no, or, just, he, or cover up organized but crime. But he did. He became a he, lawyer for he, but he success. Under, he understands that yeah. uh, that he's 
not going to do always going to do the right thing. And in fact, he passes the bar in this movie, and we get to see him give his oath. Mm-hmm. And uh, they say, I, I, I don't know the actual oath uh, mm-hmm. by heart, but he says something along the lines of, "I will not violate the trust of my client." And then later on, he's like, "Free, I will not." It's the first thing I'm going to do as a lawyer, <laughs> a defense lawyer. I'm just going to, yeah. I, I, if I know he's guilty, of course I'm just going to defend him. There's no morality in the law, is what he's saying. He's a little yeah. bit wearied by that, but at the same time, he kind of understands it's part of the system. Yeah, he understands the system is corrupt, and he's okay being a little corrupt with it. Yeah. and I think over the course of this movie, he has a, a little bit uh, a crisis of conscience. Exactly, and that's and that's yeah. what gets that, him in trouble. What, ironically, yeah. is that now that he's got a crisis of conscience, and the firm starts yeah. catching wind of that, they do more and more to control him, including threaten yeah, lives and, and like he, they like kill a all, private detective that he hired to investigate who, who's them. Who's played by Gary Busey? Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Gary, that's true. Yeah, yeah, Gary Busey is in it. Holly Hunter's in it. Holly Hunter's da- great. In David Strathairn shows up at one point. Yeah. This is like really a who, good cast. Who's who of really wonderful actors? Wilford and, uh, Brimley plays one of the evil lawyers. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> great casting. Wilford Brimley with a gun. If that Wilford doesn't get Brimley, you out of your seat, Wilford Brimley, who's got like Gene Hackman's number. This mm. is a movie where Gene Hackman is terrified of Wilford Brimley. Mm. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, and this is like a lot of scenes. Oh, you were committing mail fraud and wiring money to your host and the Caymans, like that kind of dialogue. Yeah. Uh, like I said, the actual fineries of the plot kind of escape well, me, even the, after the, seeing it a couple times. The legal times. stuff is actually not the interesting stuff. There, it leads to a good... It's a little bit more of a character piece. Th- there's a slight... There's a, there's a kind of a neat bit at the end where Tom Cruise is, like, running from an assassin, and you think Tom Cruise is running, you say. I know, right? But this is before there was a cliche, but yeah. So Tom Cruise is, is running the, from a bad guy. This movie that kind of made it a cliche. It really helped. Uh, but Tom Cruise is running from a bad guy. And you think he's, like, trying to get to the cops in order to give them all the shit on the firm. But he's actually got a different plan. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's very clever. It is very clever, and it works out really, really well in terms of the, the, the narrative. Um, but beyond that, everything the firm is doing, it, all you really need are the broad strokes. They're corrupt. Yeah. They don't care about the law. They care about covering for their rich criminal clients. And they will do anything to make sure that their other lawyers are part of the team. And if you're not part of the team, they will threaten you, blackmail, and possibly kill you. Yeah. So that's it. That's the whole fucking movie. And that's kind of why it, it didn't make my list. This is the one that one of the ones that didn't, which is it's a very solid thriller. It the the thriller part of legal thriller. Mm. is well represented in the firm and Sidney Pollock directs it with a lot of class and it almost makes you forget that the legal stuff is not that great. <laughs> it's actually not very it's it's kind of superficial in that regard. Oh, well. But it is it is a really really good thriller and I mm. like it a lot and it's a good movie and I'm glad you picked it it just wasn't one of the ones I picked. Uh one of the ones I did pick is actually one you already mentioned which is Runaway Jury. Oh, okay. Runaway Jury is deeply underrated in my estimation. Uh, I, it's a very fun film. I, I think it it's good. It's good. I'm, I'm not going like, to ask the movie, I, I but I'm surprised you it. selected it. I rewatched it not that long ago. I watched it like last year. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised by just how smart and, and, and unusual it was. The Runaway mm-hmm. Jury uh, is a film about uh, people. Who, there is a mass shooting. Uh, which sadly is even more topical than when the Runaway Jury came out, and, and the the gun manufacturer is on trial. Yeah, the people, the, the 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 families of the victims are actually suing the gun manufacturers, uh, which usually doesn't go great. People have tried it before. I think there was like one case not that long ago where it actually didn't it actually went the the way maybe justice should go. But mm. in any case, 
there's going to be a court case that's gotten this far. And in order to increase uh, the, uh, the, the gun manufacturer's chances of winning their case, they enlist Gene Hackman, again, playing mm. an even bigger role. Uh, and what he does is he fixes juries in such a way that one can. So if you've ever been in a courtroom in America, I don't, I don't know if it's the same way in other countries, but um, the jury selection process involves a group of randomly chosen people, seemingly random, in this case of this movie, maybe not, but uh, randomly chosen people. And uh, the defense and the prosecution take turns interviewing them to see if they have any personal biases that would prevent them from being objective in this case. That's the theory. In practice, what the lawyers are trying to do is see if they have personal bias that will benefit their side. Right. And then you want to keep them. And then if you're and then you have a certain number of challenges where you can say, like, just for no reason whatsoever, unless it's like racism, which they can get you for, that's illegal. But like you can just say, We're not feeling this guy. Get him off the bench. We don't want him. We have a handful of those. And beyond that, you can only challenge if there's actually a good reason to. Gene Hackman's job is to investigate every juror, uh, read their body language, try to find who is the most sympathetic to their cause. They get the jury, everything's going great, and then Gene Hackman gets a letter from one of the jurors saying, I am holding gonna, the jury... I'm, I'm going to undo what you're doing. I am going to hold the jury hostage to the highest bidder. Basically, I, will, I am on the jury and I will manipulate the jury from within... To get the outcome for whoever pays me the most. <laughs> and that person is John Cusack. And he does a lot of really wonderful insidious things to get people kicked off the jury. To change people's minds. And you can just... And Gene Hackman, who this for like the first 30-40 minutes of this movie, has been like the smoothest customer forever. He starts pulling his hair out. Because <laughs> this guy is... He, he had gamed the system. And John Cusack has found a way to game the game. Yeah, And it is such... A, a really fascinating part of the legal process that never really had its own movie before. Mm. And that would have been enough, maybe on its own. And then to just flip the script on that and make that the whole movie mm. is really fun. And I think the movie's got a lot of great twists and turns. The cast is really exceptional. Um, it's just, it, the whole movie just flies. Like, it's mm. a really fun watch. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I love it. I think this movie's really, really great, actually. Okay. Um, I like it as well. Like I, okay. like I said, it's I don't think it's like as the Grisham thrillers go, hugely extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's I'm, novel. I think I, it, I think I, it avoids I a lot of the cliches. I prefer something like the Pelican Brief. Uh, oh, that, I don't. That's another that's another one that's more thriller than legal. Uh, but um, I, I feel like the first half of the Pelican Brief is great. Okay. And then about halfway through the Pelican Brief, they explain what the Pelican Brief is. It's like this whole mystery. Like Julia Roberts yeah. is like a law student who wrote this like legal brief. Uh, which suggests maybe why a uh, Supreme Court justice had been assassinated at the beginning of the movie. But surprise, she's right. Mm. So people are trying to assassinate her and like hide this document that just yeah, lays out the entire conspiracy. It's a sort of New Orleans noir yeah. kind of thing. First yeah. half, riveting, great, well done, awesome cast. Second half, they reveal what the Pelican Brief is and you're like, oh, that's it? And then we're just, the rest of the movie happens. Like, it's just, it runs out of steam real fast. But um, this one never runs out of steam. I think it's just a really, really solid uh, thriller, and it's uh, got a clever premise, and I think mm -hmm. it does a lot with it. So I'll save yeah. it there if you if, if, if you must, but right. like, I like no. it a lot. All right, that, that's fine. All um, right. I, I like The Rainmaker. I like Runaway Jury. Okay. Um, there are a lot I don't like. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like The Chamber. 
Oh, the chamber is off. <laughs> the chamber is really bad. The chamber is I also with Gene Hackman, by the way. Gene Hackman's in most of these. Uh, He's in quite a few John Grisham movies, but man, the chamber is. It's a Chris O'Donnell plays a young lawyer, and uh, he turns out he's got a family member who was who's like in who's on death row for being a white supremacist who blew something up or whatever, and he's like volunteers to like defend him, even though they hate each other. Even though they hate each other, which it sounds the chamber is the gas chamber. It sounds like a good pot boiler. The acting is terrible. The direction is terrible. No, it's just nothing. It's just it's a nothing burger of a movie, and it Mm. sounds so Mm. melodramatic. That movie stinks. Yeah, I don't like that one. Uh, Robert Altman made a Grisham film. The Gingerbread, the Gingerbread, which is the only one that wasn't based on a book. Like Gene uh, John Grisham Uh, actually John Grisham wrote the screenplay for that one. Uh, It stars Kenneth Branagh and Robert Downey Jr. and Robert Duvall, and it also sucks. It's also yeah, it's really boring. Really, really atmospheric. Mm. Like it's got a good style to it, but mm. let's, the plot stinks. Like, yeah. It's not mm. a good movie. Uh, but I, I, here's the reason I'm going to just. I know I have one more Grisham film. I'll do it next. Get out of the way. Mm. The rest of my picks are very classy. I promise you. <laughs> I'm justifying yeah, I got, I got this, this of the, wave uh, of pulp. But I've got some really classy picks on mine. I swear to God. Right. What's what's your next pick? Uh, my next pick is The Thin Blue Line by Errol Morris. Oh, interesting choice. Um, the, okay. the Thin Blue Line is. Do- this. It's a documentary. I have two documentaries on my list. Okay. Um, I could have included a lot more. Um, it did, I was, I was it this honestly close didn't to, occur to me to do it, honestly. Yeah, I was this close to choosing a OJ Made in America. Um, oh, which, yeah. That's uh, interesting. It's a take. And I, I think it's that's like much more of like a cultural dissection than it, it is necessarily a legal thriller. Because the legal, um, thr- the, the legal aspect isn't the majority of the, the movie. It's a lot of the movie, yeah. but it's not the whole movie, yeah, actually. And the, the movie's eight hours in length as well, yeah. so there's a lot to go through. Um, and a lot yeah, of people would argue it's technically a TV miniseries since that's how it debuted. Yeah, the Thin Blue Line uh, was kind of Errol Morris' first big hit. Yeah. Kind of put him on the map. And uh, it's and a lot of people really objected to it at the time because mm-hmm. a lot of the film is made of reenactments. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of interviews, but rather than just pointing the camera at the interviewee, mm-hmm. uh, Errol Morris like had... Uh, Dramatic like, reenactment. Yeah, like uh, shadowy shots like, of like policemen's feet. Like you might outside. see on like Americans Most Wanted, which mm. at the time wasn't very respected or anything. Yeah, so, so a lot, a lot of said, yeah. oh, "Well, that's not really a documentary. You're making up." He was he stuff. was definitely blurring the line between narrative and mm. documentary features, which is what perhaps what this film was best known for. Mm. Uh, and. Um, well, we can have that conversation if you want, yeah, but, but as, a, as really as a legal film, it is exceptional. But we're talking about you know, films like The Firm, where he, uh, he yeah. discovers you know, corruption within the legal system. Yeah. This is a documentary. This is about the real the real thing, the real yeah. corruption. Yeah. Uh, and it's not really about corruption. I'm going to do this so I can get money, which, you know, that's an element of it. But mm-hmm. mostly it's just assholes. It's yeah. just asshole people who are saying the wrong thing. And um, this is about a man named Randall Dale Adams, who was uh, arrested, tried, and convicted for murdering a police officer in Texas. Mm. Uh, serious, serious crime. You do not murder. Mur- First of all, don't murder. Just don't murder uh, in general. But, you know, murdering a police officer gets you an even harsher sentence. And um, one of the, the sort of key elements is that, uh, like, one of the people testifying against him uh, was clearly not trustworthy. Yeah. Is that a, you're yeah. with a psychiatrist? 
Uh, yeah. This yeah. guy would like go in, in a lot of... Uh, Dr. James Grigson yeah, was his name. In a lot of court cases, they'll bring in expert testimony, someone who doesn't have direct knowledge of the crime. They weren't there, mm. but they are considered an expert in whatever field may be relevant in order to discuss some aspect of the crime, say uh, the ballistics of the gun yeah. or the blood spatter or something like that. And in a case where uh, maybe you're trying to get to someone's motive, you might bring in a psychologist in order to talk mm. about what led to this sort of case. Um, this guy uh, was famous for always saying the person was a homicidal maniac. <laughs> like, like that, that, yeah, no matter what what was said in court, or yeah. however, th- that was always a sign yeah. that they're insane. Yeah. And here's the weird thing, and we've I've seen dramas about this as well. Yeah. You can't prove yeah. you're not insane. It's true. Because if you say, I'm insane, that's a confession. If you uh-huh. say, I'm not insane, that's just the thing an insane person would say. Yeah. To prove that they're not insane. But yeah. So what do you say to prove you're not insane? Um, there there have been, you know, I remember uh, hearing this American Life episode about uh, people who decided to have a, a mental illness plea mm-hmm. in court uh, instead of pleading guilty. Which, which which in, like, movies is always something people say when they want to get away with it. I'll yeah. plead insanity and then I'll and get so, away with it. So, yeah, uh, yeah, some people, it's like, okay, I, I committed a crime, but if I, if, if I say I'm guilty, I go to prison. Mm-hmm. But if I say I, I have, if I'm mentally ill, I go to uh, an asylum. And mm-hmm. that's... Sounds te- like it would be te- better. Te- technically voluntary. I only have to stay there for a little bit and then I can just leave when I want to once I prove I'm sane. People go there and they never come out. They, they're there for literally decades. They can't prove they're sane. Yeah. So they're just it's, sort of stuck there. It's a terrible, terrible system. Yeah. <laughs> I, there's, a, there's, a great, um, there's a great Batman comic called Bat, uh, Arkham Asylum Living Hell. And it opens with a, like, a white-collar criminal. A guy who just embezzled like, people's retirement funds. Like a real scumbag. But a white-collar crime. Not a violent crime. But in order to get out of it... He decides he's going to plea insanity and he's going to make sure that his lawyers get the court case moved to Gotham where everybody is declared illegally insane. Like, it's just, you, nobody goes to prison. The Joker's never been to actual prison. Mm. You can do anything. And they just say, okay, fine, go to Arkham. We don't care. <laughs> and then he does and he's feeling really, really smug about it. Everyone's just like, you just intentionally got yourself thrown into Arkham into the, Asylum, into Batman villain, you, and like the, <laughs> one of the first things he does is he meets the Joker, mm. and he's like, "I fucked up." <laughs> and the Joker looks at him and he's like, "You yeah. are the worst person I've ever met." <laughs> and like, you're the Joker. You kill people. I don't think they're kids' college funds. <laughs> like, it's such a great book. That's great. <laughs> But I digress. My point is that that's that's it's that's, not a, it's not the good idea. It sounds like it's, not it's the good actually idea, you're it really screwed. Like, yeah. and, and the idea of um, getting mental health uh, so uh, mm. thickened up in the legal system as yeah. a way to keep people in prison mm. uh, proves in the thin red line that uh, that's not a good system because it just gets people thrown in prison whether or not they're uh, they're innocent. Mm-hmm. And it turns out. This guy was. Yeah, in fact, the, the movie the really movie, clearly the movie outlines. Reopened the case, yeah. went through a lot of this stuff, yeah. and uh, was one of the big reasons why his case was heard on yeah. appeal. All, all of a sudden, people because this, you know, look, let's let's just be honest here. There's horrible things happening in this country every single goddamn day. Mm. Uh, the ones that we tend to demand action on are the ones that get some sort of traction in the media. So this acclaimed documentary, which outlines in fascinating but almost excruciating detail 
all of the little inconsistencies that a- amount mm-hmm. to like a giant mountain of reasonable doubt. Which, if you're not familiar with the American legal system, uh, you're not supposed to convict anyone of a crime if there is reasonable doubt that they did not do it. You don't have to say they didn't. There mm. just has to be, you could reasonably assume that they did not. Yeah. So there's this movie adds so much reasonable doubt to this case that in the courtroom it was treated like a slam dunk. Yeah. And it completely undermines any rational person's faith in the legal system in this country. Yeah. Yeah. And it is and, uh, a brilliant documentary. And, and the only reason I didn't consider it is because it's a documentary. And I, realized right. it as, I, didn't, I thought yeah. thrilling might have been a slightly insulting term for but, documentary. I, but, I, but it is thrilling. It is, and, though. You make a good and case. Errol, Errol Morris, really, you know, because of those reenactments yeah. and just because he's such an expert, editor yeah. uh, is able to put it together in this really taut sort of way and uh, it actually does have a meaningful conclusion. Mm. The The crime in question was committed in the mid 70s. It was like 75 yeah. or 76. This movie came out in and 88. The movie so came out in 88 like, so yeah. he, was, he was already in prison still, yeah. you know, still innocent and because of this movie his conviction was overturned yeah. and he got out of prison in 1989 yeah. uh, and, he, and he lived until 2010. He, he died. Good for him. I mean, I mean, he was still pretty young. He was only 61 when he died. Yeah. But at least he didn't spend yeah. the rest of his life behind he, bars or in yeah. an asylum, you know? But, yeah. and, and, uh, and wouldn't you know it, he became, a, a, you know, a criminal reform advocate, God. an anti-death penalty. That's, advocate. that's good to hear. Um, uh, yeah. So the thin blue, the thin blue line, uh, the thin blue line, by the way, the, mm. um, that term, is uh, you, you might hear this in a lot of like uh, talk about the police because that's it's mm-hmm. what it represents the thin blue line the police force that Between... separates sanity and anarchy yeah there's this thin blue yeah. line only, only this mm. line representing that if you've ever seen uh, people have like an American flag but it's black and white but there's like one blue line mm. in the middle of it, it's for cops yeah uh, that's what they're saying is that only the police are standing between this country in absolute disorder. Mm. I have a lot of problems with that ethos, oh, is, but this is, is what it... Is, is that what that means? I thought they just wanted me to color in the rest of the rainbow. You should color in the rest yeah, of the rainbow co- and make go, it queer go as around, fuck. Yeah, yeah. Go, go around with markers. <laughs> if you see one of those American flags, all the other you know, all the other stripes yeah. are, are blank. They're just there for you yeah. to color in. Nice. Turn, turn that little blue flag into a rainbow. Nice. All right, well, my next pick um, is... Less classy. The classy ones are coming, I swear to God. <laughs> but this is the last John Grisham movie I'm going to include. Right. And I honestly think, pound for pound, this is the best John Grisham movie. And I also think it's the best movie Joel Schumacher ever directed. And mm. it's The Client. I know you're very fond of The Client. The Client kills. Like I've I, seen, I thought you would only include The Client. I love The Client. Mm. I, but I, I really... I, I struggle with this. There's a lot of movies where I'm like, this is good. There's a few I really wanted to see. Like, there's this James Spader movie called Storyville, which I've heard is excellent, but I couldn't find it anywhere. Huh. Uh, so like, there's a few films I wanted to research. And I'll, maybe I'll talk about some of them later. But um, The Client is just... The absolute best combination of John Grisham's melodrama, his social commentary, and his attention to courtroom detail. Mm-hmm. I really do think it's just it, it's an exquisitely put together film with a great pulpy premise. Uh, Brad Renfro uh, plays a poor kid in the South who stumbles across a I think he's a mob accountant or someone who knows something about uh, about mm-hmm. the mafia. Uh, in the middle of the woods, and this guy is getting ready to kill himself because he pissed off the wrong people. However, before he dies, he says something really important to this kid. And lawyers, headed uh, by Tommy Lee Jones, mm. 
are using every trick in their disposal to basically force this kid uh, to testify, uh, to basically put him in the crosshairs of potentially dangerous people who want to kill him, and they don't care. And they're willing to just trick his uneducated family into letting him do things that are not in his best interests. And while they're, like, waiting for all this to happen, he, like, runs away, finds the nearest defense attorney he can find, and just says, I need to hire you, please, for the love of God. And it turns out it's Susan Sarandon. Mm. In one of her very best roles. She's not even for an Oscar for that. She's very, very good in this movie. Um, and it turns out she's, of course, not like a high-profile, expensive lawyer, but she is a very good lawyer, and she's a very principled lawyer. And she does everything in her power to try to protect this family, which has no means and no money from a system that is set up only to protect people who have it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really, really great... This is actually one of the few like uh, uh, John Grisham movies that really appreciates the extent to which class affects a courtroom. And the extent to which people who have not are completely outgunned in almost any court situation. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a good speech Mary Louise Parker has to that effect. She plays uh, Brad Renfro's mom. This was Brad Renfro's acting debut. He's really, really good in it. Um, as a pulp thriller, as this a story about a principled lawyer trying to protect a bright but not necessarily good kid from a system that is trying to exploit him and criminals who are trying to kill him, fucking awesome well done absolutely ripping from a courtroom perspective joel schumacher knows how to make something boring look interesting (laughs) if you could say nothing else about joel schumacher he's a very inconsistent filmmaker he made great films he made crap but he made boring shit look interesting (laughs) he was very good at that he knew how to make a movie look interesting Mm. and but without making it betray itself which i think is important he's not pretending this is something it's not yeah. It's just a very well shot, like, cracking edited, like, it's just, everything about it just fucking sings. The performances are strong to a one. The only thing about this movie that doesn't work is Anthony LaPaglia's embarrassing see-through vest. <laughs> like, Anthony LaPaglia, I love him as an actor. He plays, like, one of the mafiosos who's, like, you know, oh, this kid can incriminate us or whatever like oh that. God. And he's wearing, like, a like a sport coat. But I'm, underneath I'm so it, he's wearing, like, a, he's wearing, like, this fishnet vest. He looks so stupid. He looks terrible. No, that, that's a good hot weather item. Oh, it is. Um, like, yeah. I buy that he's wearing it, but it's, like, whoever told him it's okay to wear that is not your friend. It's, like, it's like you're better off just... Just wearing nothing, honestly. Like nothing would would be better for you. Like it's it's like an embarrassment. It's it's so bad. That's the only thing about this movie that doesn't work is that vest. Everything else is just fucking awesome. Yeah. This is just if you just want a mature, smart, well acted thriller that knows what it's about, knows mm. how to be socially conscious while weaving it into the narrative. Uh, this is a great fucking movie. I love this movie to pieces. I, it gets overlooked a bit because even though I've never heard anyone say they don't like it, mm. but I've also never heard anyone say that they've rewatched it recently. Rewatch it's, it's it. It's been I a think, while since I've seen it. I think it holds up a lot better than A Time to Kill, okay. which is which is a good movie, but it's a massively overblown production. Also a Joel Schumacher movie, mm. also a hit. But anyway. 
Um, anyway, All right. that's it. What do you, what do you okay. got next? Um, I have another documentary film. Okay. I, I have two documentaries, like I said. I'll, I'll just list the other one now. Uh, this one is by Joe Berlinger and uh, Bruce Sinofsky. I, I kind of figured you were going here. Yeah, this, yeah. Uh, this is called Paradise Lost, Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. Yeah. Uh, this is a documentary about that case. Um, uh, three boys, mm-hmm. uh, I think they they were like eight to ten, uh, were, were yeah. murdered by... Uh, they were These kids were killed. Yeah. And in, in like a small town, like in the it's, woods. It's in uh, um, yeah. Uh, Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, or excuse me, it's in West Memphis, uh, not Tennessee. It's in Arkansas. Okay. Uh, so yeah, this, these murders occurred in Arkansas. Uh, and they uh, apprehended these three young men, like older teenagers in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And this is like a deeply like super evangelical conservative Christian community. Mm-hmm. And these three guys were, uh, they like read Aleister Crowley and dressed mm-hmm. in black and talked about like yeah. Satan worship they had, a lot. If you wore a heavy, if you wore like a Metallica shirt, yeah, and, uh, you were considered well, like dangerous. The, the, the clincher, they listened to Metallica. Yeah. Uh, now, if you've listened to Metallica, they're so, they're not the Satan band. They're really not. They're 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 the death band. Their yeah, songs are mostly about death and murder and killing. Especially and their dying early and, their early yeah. stuff in particular was yeah. a lot more grim, but they're not there and there were plenty of Satan bands to choose from. There, if you wanted a Satan I, band, they were had, out there. Yeah, Iron Maiden has a song called Number of the well, Beast. Every single uh, Iron, the black metal uh, well, every band. single Iron Maiden shirt has this like homicidal zombie on it, mm. which is cool. Yeah, but of, like, of all of all the bands, yeah. like Metallica, Metallica was the was, heavy metal band. <laughs> exactly, I, even the crossover time, heavy metal I was, band. I was there. My brother was this huge metalhead, oh. and like, yeah, Metallica was like the one heavy metal band that like mainstream people would agree. Okay, yeah, but Metallica's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> like they were the least outre. It's ridiculous, but yeah. So these kids who were basically. Uh, just profiled because oh they're into what's popular now yeah which is you know a little dark but they're into it so they probably killed these kids mm-hmm. in some kind of ritualistic murder uh, and um, you watch this documentary and you realize there is like no evidence that supports that absolutely not <laughs> none it's all character stuff yeah uh, let me name the the West Memphis three um uh, yeah. Damian Eccles mm. um uh Jesse Mm. Miss Kelly and Charles Baldwin. These were the yeah. the three who were accused of committing these murders. Yeah, and uh, they were accused uh, that it was part of like a Satan satanic ritual. Yeah, um, this was just satanic panic playing itself out in real life. Yeah, these guys wore Satan shirts. They talked about Aleister Crowley. Uh, mm. Yeah, just a the, lot of people. I talked the, about the, Aleister yeah, Crowley the, the when I was of, in high school. I'd never read his shit. I just kind of I fun, got secondhand yeah, the, from Alan Moore comics for fuck's exactly sake, the, you know? the, the like, kind of fun Satan stuff you get yeah. from movies and pop culture. It's it's yeah. nothing to do with actual Satan. It's just it, no. it's more an aesthetic than it is yeah. an actual belief system. Yeah. By the way, uh, the Church of Satan, uh, in order to sort of piss off evangelicals, are way more Christian than any any of those like right wing Christian <laughs> they, churches. They really are actually. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and, they, and, they, and they play a lot of pranks. It's they like do. Uh, uh, and the second and the second any Christian organization like uses like religious freedom over yeah. bigotry like basically yeah. we, we we sued to make sure that like we could have this religious statue on a public government uh, grounds mm. and we sued so yeah we get to have our Jesus statue and the Church of Satan's like great we'd Here's like a Baphomet. statue to Baphomet <laughs> right next to it because religious freedom mm. and every, all Christians are always like shit <laughs> yep 
Bless those merry pranksters. Those, those, those merry, the Church of Satan are, are they're wonderful people. They're a prankster um, religion, and I and I and I have some respect. But for yeah, them. but because of all of this weird satanic panic, and this was the '90s, so this was sort of like another wave of it. It wasn't the satanic panic that yeah. spawned The Exorcist back in like the '70s. No, but uh, there this was but like the, the next generation yeah, of it. The Exorcist was part of the early stirrings where mm-hmm. the church was starting to get nervous because there was a distinct rise in secularism. And well, just, uh, the church was shrinking and the church was shrinking yeah. and they were starting to use more. Uh, uh, yeah, they were starting to talk a bit more about Satan, and the devil, and, you know, you're going to hell and all this kind of stuff, basically, to try to scare people back into the church. And that started to crescendo yeah. in the 80s. And we had all these satanic panic. And uh, oftentimes they were mm-hmm. accusations over literally nothing. Yeah. Or an attempt to make a mountain out of a molehill, like oh, this this record. If you listen to it backwards, it says something. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's a goofy gimmick, isn't it? I don't know why we're taking <laughs> that shit seriously. Like uh, uh, Bob Goldthwait has a funny bit. It's like, and every and all these Christian conservatives, they're saying that Satan wrote all these these rock records. Okay, maybe a few. Uh, <laughs> Most of our most of them are better than that. You honestly uh, think that Satan, if Satan were real, yeah. Satan couldn't do a better job of hiding his shit than like hiding it behind an album <laughs> that looks like Satan? Yeah. That's the last place Satan would go to. <laughs> like, come on. Uh, we're getting the, in the weeds. The, the, yeah, the, theology of Satan aside, <laughs> we're, we're just um, we're just mocking people in the satanic yeah, panic because they deserve it. But the, okay, the West Memphis, but but, yeah. but it, it's very real though because the West yes. Memphis. The West Memphis Three yeah. felt this firsthand. Yeah, they, did. they were accused. They were uh, accused of being murderers yeah. because of their interests, not because of any evidence. <clears throat> yeah. And the stepfather of one of them mm-hmm. is interviewed in this documentary, and he talks about mm-hmm. how much he thinks about murdering people sometimes, and has uh, actually is like thinks killing kids might be kind of fun. Yeah, you watch like, this he says movie. this on camera. You watch this movie, and, and you're just like, you did you talk to that guy? And that like, guy sounds really suspicious. And the the filmmakers pick up on this pretty quick, yeah. and they keep like talking to him to get him to say like, more. Like he's and more. feeling pretty safe because those kids have been incarcerated. Yeah, and and like it's sort of like mm, as a dude as a gift, they he gives the filmmakers his like folding knife, and there's blood on it. Yeah, and they test, and the filmmakers are wise enough to bring it straight to like the DNA lab. Yeah, they test the blood type, and it of course belongs to the victims. <sighs> this guy has evidence, has a weapon. <sighs> He's like a fucking supervillain, just, pretty, just bragging he, about he, what is about he, his shit. Yeah, more or less confesses on camera, yeah. and yet they still go after the West Memphis. And indeed, it. they have to make two more fucking documentaries about this, about how <laughs> long this case has yeah. gone on. Yeah, this 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 I remember. When I saw this when I was a kid, this came out in 1996. Yeah, yeah. and this was uh, this was I think it was an HBO movie. It was, it was on TV, uh, and uh, it it was notable. Uh, yeah. It actually was like making the the rounds on like MTV as well. Yeah, because of the Metallica. Thing. Well, of course, the, and it, the there's, sound, a, there's a connection there. because of uh, they actually uh, asked Metallica for permission to use their music. Yeah. Metallica never did that. No, that uh, was not yeah, a thing. If you know, almost if, never did. If you know anything about Lars Ulrich from Metallica, yeah. he'd never let his music go for free. Yeah, he licensed his music for this movie because he believed in the cause. Good. Uh, yeah. Uh, I saw this movie when it came out. I remember distinctly it was, mm-hmm. like, kind of a big deal. And I remember this movie terrified the shit out of me. Yeah. Um, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky, uh directed and edited this. And um, they knew how to... 
basically sell this as the horror movie it is, but it's a horror mm-hmm. movie about a society that would do this to a bunch of kids. Yeah, it's, it's more about yeah. the, well, the awfulness of the community. Because if you think about it, it's not just that they railroaded these three kids just because they were, you know, parking lot heavy metal enthusiasts. Mm. They're also perfectly willing to overlook the obvious inconsistencies in the story. The obvious... Uh, uh, basically, they're perfectly willing to let the murders of these children mm. go unsolved as long as they can punish these teenagers for liking Metallica. Yeah, it's, That's it's fucking horrifying. It, it's more about it's more about the show, isn't it? It's about the appearance. The appearance. Well, it's about the continued stance of a certain kind of moral superiority. Yeah, and how if you can prove that in a uh, court of the law. Mm-hmm. You can continue to assert that moral superiority, right? So it stands to reason that they would overlook the truth mm-hmm. in order to retain power. Yeah, it's Terrifying. the least Christian thing yeah. anyone could possibly do. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Oh. It is legitimately terrifying and a weird not terribly important but a weird adjunct to this is that Joe Berlinger would end up making one narrative feature film that would be about satanism and people who like worship satan in the woods killing people it was book of shadows Blair Witch 2 which was a movie that was like rushed into production like they shot it in like 2 days or something like they, it was they, like, they, they, super they, fast Blair Witch was a huge hit and like yes and less like a year later or less than a year later Blair Witch 2 was in theaters and you watch that movie and you can tell there's some ambition like they were trying to say something but oh it is so badly done and it's just it's kind of embarrassing because Joe Berlinger is clearly like close to this kind of material the idea of the sensationalism yeah. of of uh the sensationalism of tragedy uh and uh people who are uh uh, accused of horrible things just because of their interests. And that's kind of what Book of Shadows is about, but it's about it in such a tactless, <laughs> shameless, embarrassing yeah, yeah. way. I, I wonder if he'd had more time if that could have been a great movie. I don't know. But I do know is that that's a weird adjunct to Paradise Lost. At, at least see the first documentary. It is really good. Yeah, it's um, scary, but it's really good. Uh, the West Memphis Three were arrested in uh, 1993. Yep. The movie came out in 96. Yeah. There were two sequels that were made over the years about how they were still trying to get their deals. Last one came out in 2011. 2011, and it it wasn't until then that their case was kind of, their sentence was essentially overturned. Absolutely Um, horrible miscarriage of justice. I'm with you, yeah. In the criminal justice system, everything sucks, Chung Chung. Uh, speaking about a possible miscarriage of justice, and I mean possible, because uh, this is a story that is based on a true story, but to the best of my knowledge, the the actual facts of the case never really came out. Uh, let's talk about Klaus von Bülow. <laughs> Yay! I'm so glad you chose this one. Okay, so this is a movie called Reversal of Fortune. It was made in 1990. It was directed by Barbette Schroeder. And uh, this is about the story of a man who married a very wealthy woman, Sonny Von Bulow. Uh, she's played in the movie by Glenn Close. Mm. She spends most of the movie in a coma, but she does narrate the film, which is very <laughs> playful. Um, he's played by Jeremy Irons. He won an Oscar for this. Well-deserved. Um, he is accused of trying to kill his wife with, I believe, an insulin overdose. Yeah. And w- which put her, ended up putting her in a coma. Uh, her family hates him. Everyone thinks he did it. 
but and, and, he's, and he's a smug asshole, he's, so he's not everything doing about, anything. Everything about him suggests that he would do it. Except he insists that he didn't, and indeed, there's not a lot of evidence to actually prove that he did. And the movie is about this smug asshole who just radiates I'm tried to kill my wife vibes. Aww. And the lawyers who are trying to it's their responsibility to give him a defense. Everyone's supposed to get a defense, even if they're even if they are guilty. You're supposed to get a good legal defense, because mm. it's the best yeah. every, everyone's entitled to a legal defense under the law, whether you did it or not. Um they're trying to give him a good legal defense, even though he's giving them nothing. And a lot of the movie is them trying to suss out the ethics and morality of actually defending him. And indeed, they're trying to figure out, this is a huge chunk of the movie, that just them sitting around a table trying to figure out how he did it. Right. <laughs> like, well, this is how he would do it. Well, maybe he'd do it this way. No, I think this happened. Like, mm-hmm. And you never find out. It's intensely... The, the whole movie should be intensely dissatisfying because, in reality, there was no uh, uh, who, who's the who's the who's the famous like movie uh, TV lawyer guy. Uh, That's so many people. The, the, the early, no, no, the early one, like uh, the, Perry Mason. Perry Mason. Right. There's no like big Perry Mason moment right. where someone breaks down on the stand. It's like I confess, mm. I confess, I did it all. The end of this movie, the last scene in this movie, oh, is one of, one of the cheekiest endings I've ever seen in a film. It is so mm. fucking smarmy about mm. the fact that they never told you what actually happened. But the thing is, is that that's life. Mm. That's often. The legal system. Sometimes it's not entirely clear what actually happened, or who is actually guilty, or if anyone is even guilty. All we know is that guy's an asshole, and he had good lawyers. Yeah, and that is a great movie about that, where you're just you're desperately hoping that the legal system will kick in and justice will prevail. Mm. And here's the thing: the legal system arguably worked. Nothing really. Illegal happens within the legal system. He just had good lawyers who got him off. Maybe he didn't deserve to, but you don't know. And it's that level of uncertainty that the movie is playing with. And it's such a fascinating, it's it's weirdly riveting for how obtuse it is. And I love it to pieces. It's a great, I saw this movie when I was eight years old over and over again, just because of its fascinating tone. And I love it to pieces. It's a great movie. Um, I, I, I like it too. I yeah. think Jeremy Irons really carries this. He does. I think uh, Ron Silver is a little bit underrated in this movie. Yeah, he plays Alan Dershowitz, yeah. whose name has not... Um, well, has, has been uh, sort of... Uh, has been tarnished a bit. Yeah, by Alan Dershowitz. Well, granted. <laughs> I, 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 my point was I didn't really want to get into it. But, uh, like, yeah, he's he's not great. But at uh-huh. the time, he was considered a very good lawyer. And, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and the person you make a heroic movie about. Mm. Not so much. Uh, should I keep on going? Please. Um, uh, again, you have nothing to add to that? That's just basically that good movie? Basically okay, good. Good, good movie. Let's move on. Uh I, this one was nearly my number one, but I'm going to mention it next. Uh, because it served as a very important template for the way legal thrillers are constructed. Interesting. Okay. Uh, it's it's uh, Otto Preminger's Anatomy of a Murder. Okay, I've actually never seen this. Oh, this one's a really good movie. Okay. Uh, uh, this is... Uh, there were lawyer shows on TV prior to Anatomy of a Murder. It came yeah. out in 1959. 
but it feels like every legal show kind of broke off of this movie and mm-hmm. kind of formed its own. Well, you don't have to be first to set the template. Sometimes, yeah. it, sometimes like um, it's like Halloween was not the first slasher movie that goes mm-hmm. back to at least Black Christmas, mm-hmm. maybe Home for the Holidays. But Halloween was the one where it's all sort of everything kind of congealed together by that point. Like we knew what worked and it all fit together in like a perfect piece. Yeah. And this is what was not only good but copyable. Yeah, yeah. So and Adam and Rudy is the copyable it's, it's version. It's the copyable version. Okay. So uh, Jimmy yeah. Stewart is the uh, the lawyer. He's the mm-hmm. defense lawyer, and he is the he is a simple country lawyer, and he takes cases out of the goodness of his heart, and he gets a rather shocking case. Uh, this is 1959, mind you, and this is one of the earliest examples uh, you might hear uh, words like panties mentioned oh. on camera and this is about a sexual assault okay and they and they use the word rape on camera and Which that is not done it was not done that movie that word wasn't yeah. used in movies at yeah. all and um i think strictly verboten actually uh and the the case that he get becomes involved with is uh, ben gazara mm. uh plays a man who's committed murder and he's committed murder because his wife was sexually assaulted and he uh murdered the man who assaulted his wife his wife is played by lee remick uh, just like in Reversal of Fortune, they're both weirdly arrogant about what happened. Lee Remick was assaulted, but she's not... You know, people have responded to assault in many different ways, mm-hmm. but she seems very blasé about what happened, which uh, immediately starts raising some red flags. Prosecutors played by George C. Scott. Jimmy Stewart versus George C. Scott. That's <laughs> dude. You don't need. You don't. You don't even need to tell me context. Yeah. Jimmy Stewart versus George C. Scott is a, is sold. Yeah, you know. And uh, it, this is of uh, a, a very long film. It's about near over two and a half hours long, where they just take you through the case and sort of the the fineries and details therein. There's uh, all of the the lawyer cliches started up in this movie. You know, this this is a court case, not a high school debate. That mm. kind of stuff. Um, the bit where uh, they have to present Lee Remick's uh, un- undergarment as a piece of evidence. Uh, there's the judge actually has to stand up and say what we're going to be presenting is a mm. piece of un- is, a, is an undergarment, a woman's undergarment. Get your snickering done now, mm. okay? Because we're going. This is actually a really important part of the case. And of course, as the case goes on, we learn that some things might not be on the up and up. What the relationships were were. Uh, not really solidly put down. Uh, there's a lot of like lies and trickery and other things going on in this case. Yeah. Uh, and you, you realize that this movie is imitated for a reason. This is where all of those thrills began. This is what a courtroom thriller is supposed to look like. This is the Ur example. It all started with anatomy of a murder. Uh, the, the way it uses legal language uh, as a way of ringing thrills mm. is something that it was done on TV, but never to this extent yeah. and never with uh, so like the passion so heated. And because this is a movie, mm. they're uh, trying to push the content a little bit further. There wouldn't be a story like this about sexual assault on Perry Mason. No, no. Uh, and yeah, and of course it's about how the uh, Jimmy Stewart character who is, at the beginning of the movie, like, doesn't really practice law as passionately as he used to. Uh, kind of gets back into it and realizes only at this late time how kind of how bad the world has gotten. There's this kind of no country for old men vibe to it. Uh, 
But yeah, the, the most of the movie is just uh, devoted to detailing every little uh, piece of the case and presenting it and talking about evidence in this really kind of responsible, but also like pot boilery kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is really good. It's a, uh, Otto, Otto Preminger is a little bit spotty uh, as a, as a director, I think mm-hmm. I haven't liked all of his movies. He's always been, he's always a provocateur, yeah. which is not always a good thing, mm-hmm. but he, he often made it a good thing. Yeah. Um, he, he made a, a, Kind of this noir film called Laura, which I'm very I fond of. I think we did that when we talked about uh, murder mysteries. I think that made yeah. one of our lists. Yeah, great movie, Laura. Really excellent. Uh, he was, of course, it, Mr. Freeze on Batman. He, he played Mr. Freeze on <laughs> he Batman. Mr. Freeze. He, he did a film <laughs> version of Porgy and Bess the same year he did Anatomy of a Murder, which Weird. is a little bit of whiplash okay. there. Uh, after Anatomy of a Murder, he made a film called Exodus, which is just oh, yeah. great, great music, but it's actually like long and turgid and it, actually pretty dull. Yeah, the, seriously, though, the score of Exodus is mm. an all-timer. Like yeah, it's, it's, it's you it's can't like get out of your head. Grand it's movie the scores. absolute like oh bum, my god, bum, what a Yeah, awesome. My my parents had that on vinyl. Nice. <laughs> That's how popular that score was. Uh, uh, but yeah, th- yeah, this this one's just a corker. I think it's Otto yeah. Preminger's. Uh, I haven't seen a lot. I know he's done like thirty movies, and I've only seen like four yeah. or five of them. But it's the best of the ones I've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it really is. If if you like legal thrillers, mm. you can come to this and kind of see the origin story of, yeah. of legal thrillers. Right. Well, um, my next pick is also from the 1950s. Okay. And it is also, this is a film that I don't think is often discussed as a legal thriller very often, but it is clearly a legal thriller. It all revolves around a case, but the case is a desperate and pathetic sham. Uh, this is Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory. Ah, what? oh, that's a good choice. Thank you. I didn't think of Paths of Glory. I'm, I'm proud of thinking of Paths of Glory. I'm not going to lie. Paths of Glory is uh, one of the films that put Stanley Kubrick on the map. It stars Kirk Douglas as a soldier in France in World War One, And uh, in the trenches, uh, a lot of the uh, actual like military leaders we're asking their men to do things which were basically suicide missions. Mm. Basically, we're just going to all run over the top of this hill and we're going to all get machine gunned and it's not going to work. But at the end, I'll be able to say I tried <laughs> and that'll look good for me and maybe I'll get a medal. That's the vibe. That's mm. the that's the attitude towards war and the military that Paths of Glory has. Um, do you think uh, Kubrick was a cynic? I think Kubrick was... <laughs> this is a very cynical movie. Yeah. It is not... It doesn't feel dishonest, which I think is important. Mm. But it's a deeply cynical film, particularly about uh, uh, war and class. So uh, what happens is they... After a lot of really terrible things happen, uh, a lot of the men refuse to go over the fucking wall because they know they're just going to die and it will serve nothing and they have no chance of actually surviving. And as a result, the people in charge want to try like hundreds of people for cowardice and they would all be executed. For cowardice. Yeah. yeah. And then they ended up talking them down to a token few because that's way too many people. Uh, You're going to have a hard time justifying that. But they decide they're going to have this one token person from each regiment. One guy is selected because he knows that his commanding officer was responsible for throwing a grenade that killed his own men. So he's going to be executed to cover up for that crime. Uh, Another guy, I can't remember what the other guy was. The other guy is also in there for really bad reasons, like for not fair reasons at all. And another guy is literally randomly chosen. And before this before he started being court-martialed for cowardice, he'd been given, like, multiple medals for bravery. He's, like, exactly the wrong guy. 
Kirk Douglas, who used to be a lawyer before he joined uh, the army, is enlisted to give them a defense because they have to give them a defense. And Kirk Douglas tries to give them a defense only to discover that there's no it's court. For, it's a foregone conclusion. Yeah, there's yeah. no court stenographer. He's not allowed to introduce any evidence. And they're going to get killed no matter what he does. And he yeah. is still desperately trying to find some way to keep these three guys alive because they did nothing wrong. And it is bitter, and it is sad, and it's, it is as great an anti-war film as I've ever seen. What What I love about it is how much time we spend with the accused soldiers. Yeah. And how horrified they are by all of this, and how yeah. they kind of know that this is coming. Yeah, this is, this is an existential nightmare mm. that they're in. We're basically just by... In some cases, because they got railroaded because they tried to do the right thing. In some cases, just through sheer shitty luck. Mm. Their life turned to shit. Yeah. And yeah. they're about to be murdered for something that is not their fault. Just mm. so that other people can feel good about themselves. And then towards the end of the movie, when everything has gone horribly wrong, there's this really, really bitter note at the end. Where one guy who... Kirk Douglas had this like last Hail Mary move. To maybe find a way to save these guys. And he gives it to this one guy and it doesn't work. And the guy is just like, yes, well, I appreciated your attempt to get a promotion by trying really, really hard. And Kirk was like, no, I wanted them to live. I'm like, oh, whoops. (laughs) It's so fucked up. Like, it's so fucked up. It's the most absolutely bitter film about... People who are abusing the legal system for their own for their own ends. And it's fucking great, but God is it depressing. <laughs> it's really depressing. Yeah, no, that that that's an excellent choice. Thank that's you. Excellent. I'm honored that you would say so. So we're we're getting into the classy stuff now. Yeah. Yeah. So, the good um, stuff. That, <laughs> we're, we're Again, here, we're not we're, we're not we're not ranking rounded. them, but like yeah. we're saving the classy stuff for the for the end. N- notice notice I started with stuff like the devil's advocate. Yeah. I'm not like bringing it up now. Again, I went to the uh, airplane novels first and I'm moving away from airplane novel territory right again, now. Again, I think that's just our instinct, just mm-hmm. to sort of give our lists an arc, but again, all of these are recommended. Okay. The fun films, uh, and sometimes, but this heavy one, films, this one actually, I think, plays a lot different now than mm. it did when it first came out in 1979. Uh, I'm talking about Robert Benton's Kramer versus Kramer. Oh shit! I didn't even think about that as a legal thriller. I guess yeah. It's it's called yeah. Kramer versus Kramer. No, it's, I get uh, it's it. Just, I, I, it's it's about a divorce proceeding. It's not about, I don't know about it's not a, thrills. It's, but like, it's not not you know crime, and it's no, not. No, no, uh, it, you know. it counts. I've actually never seen this all the way through. I've never seen. Oh, the whole thing. Well, yeah. um, so this is awesome. Good, yeah, good this, pick. This movie came out in 1979, and. Uh, it, it was significant because it was actually reflecting something that was happening a lot in in America, mm-hmm. and it was a skyrocketing divorce rates. Yeah, um, and you can a lot of uh, sociologists have talked about why this happened. Uh, yeah. Post war milieu, a lot of people are settling down, and uh, I said it says milieu, milieu. Take two drinks. Um, <laughs> if you're, if, if you, we haven't talked about that in forever. Someone once yeah. said we said milieu more in our podcast than anyone has ever heard it before. So this is the drinking game. You yeah. take a drink whenever every time we say, we say milieu. milieu yeah, that's, yeah, enjoy. Uh, that, yeah. that, that's our word. Oh um, my god, you are so wasted right now. <laughs> <laughs> you are so wasted. Right now. Ho- hope you're drinking something light, maybe <laughs> champagne. Uh, not not. No, you'll get a headache doing that. Don't do that. But uh, no, just take a, a shot of of beer. There you go. <laughs> Or, or if you're under tw- or if you're under your legal drinking age, a shot of soda pop. Take, take, take you know, like you know those little like mini like Halloween packs of Nerds candy. Just chug an entire Nerds. There you go. That's that's a shot. That's a candy eat, shot. Eat a, it's one a, thing a, in Nerds. A pixie stick. Uh, oh, anyway. oh god, no, that'll you'll be rattling the cages. <laughs> <laughs> you'll be vibrating around your house. I just ate forty pixie sticks, man. Oh god, <laughs> come down off the ceiling. Uh, in, don't don't in, do in, don't do what a family member of mine did. 
never snort a pixie stick. Oh god! <laughs> Terrible idea. It okay. seems like a funny thing to do and like a, a, a school prank thing. Mm. Never do that. That it's doesn't so seem like bad. a funny thing. To no, do. it's although really I'll, bad. I'll say this. We're all, we're on the weeds, but I'm going to yes. say this anyway. Um, yeah. I, a friend of mine got in trouble at my church youth group because oh because she invented her own cigarettes. Oh, uh, this was she was under eighteen. Well, yeah, that's already, already a bad start. Already when, a bad start. when you start involving cigarettes, uh, okay. But uh, and she wanted she wanted to smoke just because teenage rebellion sort of thing. Yeah, and, but, I, I don't encourage but, it. But, but teenagers, but, I get, the, I get it. Yeah. Could could not had no access to tobacco. Yeah. So uh, found tea, like oh. literal drinkable tea leaves. Yeah. Like just herbal tea, like sleepy time or something. Yeah. Uh, put it in a pixie stick and smoked it that way. Oh. <laughs> like in the paper of the pixie. That stick. sounds awful. Uh, and you know, but you know, we're we're fourteen. It's like this is the coolest thing. I invented my own cigarettes, man. <laughs> and you, when you say like I invented my own cigarettes, that seems like a hipster thing now. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I grew my own tobacco and I made my own cigarette. No, this is a teenager smoking tea leaves. <laughs> I mean, a pixie yeah. stick, no less. And, and you know, like passing it around, it's like we're at the church. I mean, she smokes this pixie. Stick. Yeah, it's the most <laughs> awful. I didn't smoke any. I'm I, imagining. I, I watched that... it happening. It was just fascinating to me. <laughs> I'm imagining this is like what it was like at like Downton Abbey during like the Beat Generation in the fifties. <laughs> It's just like, I heard Sir Reginald had a child out of wedlock. Oh, that's good, Earl Grey. <laughs> can, can you make tea out of marijuana? Like marijuana yeah, leaves? Yeah, you can do it. Like, and get high that way? I'm, it's not going to be very not be very great high. Like, but right. yeah, you, there, you can get teas made from, from marijuana. I mean, maybe there's like a way you could like infuse it or something like that. I don't know the details. I'll, but I'll have to look you it can make tea out of any, anything, really. Like, it's tea is just soaking water in something. Kramer versus Kramer is yeah. about divorce. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so if you soaked divorce in boiling water, uh, you would get a delicious tea. In, in the 1970s, there were skyrocketing divorce rates. Uh, after World War II, a lot of people uh, were able to settle down. They engaged in these marriages. All of these really rigid social structures started yeah. cropping up in the new suburban America. And it did, took a generation and a half for people to start saying out loud that made everyone miserable. Yeah. A lot of marriages that should never have happened happened anyway. Mm-hmm. Watch the movie Revolutionary Road at some point. Oh yeah. That's see, yeah. that's 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 a movie where it's just like divorce would have solved everyone's problems. Yeah. Uh, and I, I saw that with my wife like right after we got married. Oh, I was like, Jesus. oh shit. Oh, that's this a is, terrible this movie was to watch right after we got Oh god. It's like the time we watched The Baba Duke when my son was like a week old. It's like, oh no. <laughs> Children ruin your life, everybody. Look oh, at this movie. God. Uh that that be a great like film festival it's just movies about like how like your life is going to be terrible like so you start with you start with revolutionary road you go to the babadook and you end with michael haneke's amour (laughs) (laughs) it's just like and and we're done then i'm just gonna go sleep for the next 40 Uh, years but because it was uh because there were so many unhappy marriages throughout the 1950s uh in the 1970s a lot of uh divorce just started becoming a lot more common the stigma was lifting, but it wasn't all the way lifted in 1979. So yeah. making a movie about specifically about the fineries and the details that parents have to go through in order to separate, especially mm. parents who have a young child, yeah. have to do to separate, uh, seemed really raw. Well, it had a uh, novelty it was, value. Yeah. It wasn't like nowadays, I think most people, you go out and socialize enough, or just when you're at school, you're going to know someone who... Has divorced parents, yeah, so, uh, yeah. or, or or some similar social uh, uh, family situation, but like yeah, in the seventies, it was conceivable that it was still like new to your neighborhood, yeah, you know, yeah. like it was, or or you just didn't know the details of it, like how it happened, like how does a divorce 
yeah. uh, work. It's a legal proceeding. And, it's complicated. And, uh, and uh, the rising divorce rates also mm-hmm. came with a lot of other social changes that were going on in the country at the time. Uh, you know, uh, what rights do fathers have was a big part of what mm. was going on here, how a lot of divorces, uh, mothers tended to get custody. That's mm. still true. Yep, that's um, often the default, yeah. Wor- working uh, your d- job as well as being a single parent was kind of a new uh, <laughs> yep. thing. We're going to get a lot of, of movies in the 80s rates. about that. That's what E.T. is really about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, no, noted, if you go through the 1980s, you'll notice how many single parents there are in yeah. children's entertainment. Yeah. And... Uh, I find it very telling. It took me until seeing that Fluffy Dogs special to really realize this. Really, that was the that well, was the thing that put you I, over the edge. Well, I saw it, but uh, the, the 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 single parents, and I understood this was because of divorce rates, and you know the parents have to work. And the this kids is are an episode alone. of Cancel Too Soon that we did, by the mm. way, about a failed TV pilot for a cartoon series about a child with a divorced mom who mm. uh, meets magical dogs. It's very I, silly, and, and he meets it, it is very silly, and it's all very toy centric. It's not but, bad actually, but it's very silly. Mm. But the idea is that kind because you're being left alone you now have to traverse the world on your own and yeah. a lot of what entertainment was saying is you're alone but think of the there's actually wonderment for you yeah there's there's a not just an airsats parent in the form of et yeah but also uh your solitude is going to be a superpower it was actually yeah. like this I mean, weird way to sort of make up for a like, lot like of th- absent th- parents. Think about stuff like uh, The Lost Boys, where like you're on your own a lot, but don't worry, you've read a lot of horror comics. If vampires come for you, you're prepared. Yeah, like you're that kind of thing. The yeah. thing you had to do while you were alone reading yeah. vampire comics was actually preparing you for the world. Yeah, uh, in, in there's a, way a, a lot of eighties movies been, had that yeah. fantasy. The Last Starfighter was about that. The, the, Monster, the Monster Squad, Squad was yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, all of this is a result of divorce, and I think a lot of the flashpoint, a lot of the issues that that we're talking about, were presented in a pretty tactfully tactful way in Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah. Uh, Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep play Kramer and Kramer, and yeah, they're going to separate. Uh, they have a young son. Who's wait, which pro- one's Kramer and which one's Kramer? Uh, Kramer is Dustin Hoffman. Okay. Oh no! Wait, Kramer was Meryl Streep. Okay, sorry, sorry. So, actually, she, she and uh, there's there's actually some debate as to whether she's going to go back to her, her right. original name, which was Stern. Hmm. Um, and who is, uh, let me look up the actor's name, Justin Henry was the boy. Oh yeah, like I still think he's still like the youngest like Oscar nominee and Best Supporting Actor or something like that. He, he was nominated for an Academy Award, yeah, I think it was like, like single eight or digits. something. Yeah, yeah, very young kid. Uh, and I don't know if he's still working actually, I don't, I don't think know. I saw him in anything since Kramer vs. Kramer. Well, he didn't have to. Um, yeah. Well, why not? It peaked early, I guess. Yeah, but... Uh, it, it has all of that, it, and because it's Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep, they're actually, like, really grounded in their performances, they're, and they're really... Yeah, this is her first Oscar sh- win. Yeah, they're, and they're, yeah. they're struggling to make their life seem as normal as possible when really everything's being thrown up in the air, and... It, it was actually really hard for me to take something like Marriage Story seriously. Mm. It's like, this one's up for Best Picture. Really? I saw this 40 years ago. And it's the <laughs> same movie. Like, you haven't updated anything in this movie. It's like the exact same issues. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you want something a little bit more raw and up to date, Noah Baumbach made a movie prior to a Marriage Story called The Squid and the Whale, which I think is a lot more of a, a modern case. I much prefer Squid mod- and the Whale yeah, to it's, Marriage it's a Story. Much, yeah. much better movie. Uh, great supporting performances in Marriage Story. Alan Alda, Ray Liotta, Laura Dern, mm. all fantastic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm actually not that fond of Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson in it. Uh, no, like, they're like, doing I, fine. Like, they're, they're not they're bad. Do, they're, they're doing like, fine, but they're clearly, like, kind of spitballing a little bit. It feels yeah. really off the cuff, and it, it, yeah. I think they improvised a lot of their dialogue. Uh, Kramer versus Kramer is is stronger than any of the modern ones, like, because it's all of the same issues. What happens when your child gets hurt? There's a really uh, damning scene where the child is in... Uh, 
Dustin Hoffman's care and falls off a jungle gym and hurts himself and how you know that's an everyday accident and if it was there if both parents were there they would just sort of take care of the child and say that was an unfortunate accident but because he's there with a single father all of a sudden it's all on the father mm. and uh, I feel like a, a great deal of uh, Kramer versus Kramer also tackles uh, the importance of sort of gender roles and the, the two-edged sort of sexism how women are expected to be the nurturing caregivers the parents mm-hmm. uh whereas like and by that same token the fathers are expected to be terrible parents uh yeah. you'll notice and that rhetoric is still around today too woman pushing a stroller doing a mom's job man pushing a stroller fucking hero I hate that. Yeah. I hate that the men are getting extra credit for just doing the regular parent stuff. I mean, that was something that like society was like mm. getting used to. Was the because again, the majority of like even the media we were going to mm. see of single parents were single moms. The yeah, vast moms majority and, were single. And moms. when and, uh, a father uh, did something domestic, it was often played for laughs. Yeah, Mister Mom Mis- is a great. There's example. a movie called Mister Mom. Yeah, the whole joke is <laughs> this is the entire premise of the movie. Mm. Uh, Michael Keaton loses his job and his wife has to go to work and he has to take care of the kids at home. Mm. And that's that's it. And how they got a whole movie out of it. That was the very mm. first movie we ever rented when we bought a VCR. Mm. Yeah. So that the, <laughs> was a hit. The sexism about women is that they're expected to be uh, caregivers, and on the other edge of that sword, mm. men are expected to be dolts. It took three men to raise a baby. I, yeah, that's, that's another one. <laughs> three whole men it took to raise one baby. Like, that was the idea. Men are that useless at yeah, anything domestic, no. which is nonsense. To, to, uh, to three men and a baby's credit, yeah. they established those three men as being, like... Uniquely bad at this. Yeah. Like, yeah, specifically ill-equipped. Like, I, they're, I, they're supposed to be, like, these... It's it's a cute movie. Bachelor men about I, I, I'm not mad at three men and a baby, yeah. but it is, again, the premise is like, indicative of a general social yeah, idea um, about men it's, and anything that is uh, considered care giving uh i'm gonna lose some uh some critical cred for this but you like three men a little lady better don't you no i think three okay. minutes three men and a baby is actually a a, a fine film it's, yeah it is it's, it's, i've seen it forever some fun things to say i think there's some funny gags and it also has a drug smuggling subplot <laughs> the fuck like they actually crammed it all in there they no wonder it was a, a family hit. movie just randomly yeah. just I, somehow i hid the cocaine in the and diaper wrong. pail that's a plot point in three men and a baby oh god the uh, 80s <laughs> That was but the 80s. Kramer versus Kramer was yeah. trying to say something actually kind of penetrating about it. Um, my yeah. only objection to Kramer versus Kramer is the ending where it ah. seems like they're actually not necessarily going to reconcile, but they're actually like kind of on good terms at the end mm-hmm. when... A little easy. It, it, yeah, it would have been actually a, a little bit... Um, I'm not going to say more realistic, but a little bit more emotionally honest if they were still mm. at odds at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It gives kind of a Hollywood ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it has the Hollywood mm. ending, but until yeah. then, it actually is incredibly raw and incredibly uh, penetrating and actually shows you the the dull complications of what it takes to go through a divorce. Um, yeah. If you liked a marriage story, see Kramer versus Kramer. It is better. No. Uh, the, uh, my next pick, mm. is, and we're at a point now where my top four are very much a tie for number one. These are all... Yeah. Paths of Glory is a great movie, but it's kind of like a little on the periphery. It doesn't, it's kind of an interesting choice, but not necessarily what people think of when they think of legal thrillers. And I have one more of those. But these ones for me, these are like just absolute, like practically perfection. Mm-hmm. Uh, every single one. And I'm going to start with a movie uh, that... It's one of those movies I don't hear talked about enough, but whenever it's talked about and anyone has seen him, like, that's one of the best movies ever made. And it's Sidney Lumet's The Verdict. 
Uh, I haven't seen The Verdict. You've never seen The Verdict? Oh, oh my God. God. So that's a failing on my part. Oh, it's such a great movie. Okay, so uh, Paul Newman may be giving his best performance, which is saying something. Um, he plays an aging alcoholic uh, lawyer. He's not even very good at his job, but he ends up uh, picking up a medical malpractice case from a church that is actually run, uh, from a hospital that is run by the church. Okay. So, on top of it all, there's politics and organized religion on top of everything. Hospitals are pretty, usually pretty well equipped to handle mal- medical malpractice cases because, you know, it's a, it's a potential issue that arises. But on top of it all, you've got the church and you've got, you know, it, it's, it's a losing battle. Mm. And... He just sees this as, you know, just a fucking job. And it's going to make him some money. Mm. And he'll get booze. And then there's this incredible moment. <laughs> they pay me in whiskey. The, the opening with the verdict is like, you know, like when you when you take writing classes, like one of the things that they try to encourage you to do is try to come up with a dynamic way to open your movie. You know, something mm. exciting, something unique, something distinctive, something really grab people. And, and you don't have to do that, but it's the thing a lot of storytellers try to do because, um, you know, people's attention is... Um, Easily lost nowadays, and it always has been, really. So you want to grab him. The verdict opens with Paul Newman playing uh, pinball for a while. Like it's riveting. It's just absolutely riveting. Look, just I, seeing this old drunk <laughs> with like his <laughs> booze on the pinball machine. Just play. It's Paul Newman. Which he's um, just playing pinball and not doing good at it. Nerd, nerd question. Yeah. I don't recall. Which machine was I it? I don't recall. Damn it. I'm sorry. Whenever, I don't recall. Whenever they show a pinball machine in a movie in the background, I want the movie to zoom in on the <laughs> pinball machine for I'm gonna, at least, I'm a, gonna, you know what, at least gonna, a minute or two. For, for your sake, I'm going to Google this. The, the <laughs> verdict. I would have, wouldn't it be great if there was a tie-in pinball machine to Cindy Lumet's The, the Verdict? The verdict <laughs> pinball. There, there are some really weird... There's like an Apollo 13 like it, pinball machine. It, like, it like, like rolls up into like that shoot in the middle and just goes, Objection! <laughs> You obtained three gavels. Uh, it's called some. Disco Fever. I've played Disco Fever. There you go. I know that one. All right, there you go. Oh I, I've, well, I've, been, I've been to the Pinball Museum in yeah. Las Vegas, and it, yeah, it's just a giant warehouse. Well, they should put a sign over it, the Pinball go, Machine from back. the Verdict. Everyone yeah, should line up for that, yeah. Um, anyway, but there's this incredible scene where he uh, he goes to this, and this person's comatose, and mm. he takes pictures of them with... Uh, a Polaroid camera mm. and you know Polaroid cameras and you pull out a photograph and it develops automatically back when that was the closest thing we had to uh, like instant photographs yeah uh, and there's this incredible bit where he's taking pictures of this person and he's just doing it and honestly he's doing it in a very uh, uh, not, mm. not, not the most respectful way but like All he right. just he takes the pictures and he puts them on the bed next to the comatose basin and he just sort of stares there looking at her and we just hold on the photographs as they develop okay. and as he's just watching this person and he's actually thinking it out he realizes I actually have to do the right thing I actually have to do this job I have to be good at this and what it amounts to is this incredible uphill battle between uh, Paul Newman and James Mason giving his last great performance uh, as like the um, uh, as the opposing counsel. Uh, everything is stacked against him. He has like this absolutely bulletproof, incredible witness who's got like actual evidence and that suggests that like oh they changed this person's records and this is why they're in a coma. And then. <laughs> 
the testimony is thrown out. And you're like, holy shit! What is this? How is it even possible to get anything done? It is a very cynical movie about the justice system, but unlike Paths of Glory, which is cynical about life, mm. the verdict believes that if you try really, really hard, the right thing can be done. And it, Sidney Lumet knows that in order for that not to be schmaltzy, because mm. that would be death, you have to make life seem as hard as it possibly can. You actually have to earn a victory. It can't just be given to you because it's a Hollywood movie. Yeah. And nothing about the verdict feels Hollywood. It feels incredibly reserved and mature and... It's cynical without being bitter, and okay. I think it's 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 just. I wish you'd seen it. I wish I think we have a really good conversation about it. It is an a, a damn near perfect movie. Like it's an exceptional work of, of fiction, and Excellent. I hope uh, if anyone's watching this, I hope you all see it because it's really really good. I, I, I wish I could speak to it. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I don't, don't know the. I can't that's, speak to the. That's, that's a shame. But okay. Well, what's your next? What's your what's your what's your third from uh, last pick? I guess third. Um. Uh, we've had no overlaps this is really interesting yeah um, I, wonder, but, I think we've got probably one coming I've got a theory I mean there's gotta be at least one I would hope right um, uh, what do I want to talk about I thought next? we shared a brain I don't know <laughs> we don't always agree um, but we, we, we have similar tastes here, this one's a little bit more of a recent film okay. uh, in fact I think it was one of the best films of the year it came out and I'm talking about Mangrove the first film in the small axe oh, cycle oh shit I didn't even think um, of that that's a great pick thank you <laughs> shit that would have made my list Yeah, Man- that would have made my list that's, oh I'm so glad you thought of that the, great there are, pick there are five, five films in the small axe cycle watch them all yes uh, they're all excellent even um, the worst one's great uh, yeah like uh, like would you say Alex Weedle would be the worst Al- one? Or, I actually like or Al- Red, White, and Blue. Oh, yeah, I think Alex Weedle is a little formalist, but like it's still really interesting. Yeah. Like yeah. it's just, yeah, I, but they're all amazing. Yeah, Lo- Lo- Lover's Rock is like the, the Rock is, it's considered the best one. Lover's I lo- Rock is one of the best movies ever. Like it's, yeah, I mean, just all, yeah, all of them so taken as a great. unit is great. But yeah, yeah um, uh, the first film I came out in uh, 2020, mm-hmm. it, yeah. it was, it went to Amazon and it was, People were arguing whether it was classified as a film or a TV series. It's a film cycle. Yeah. Uh, some of the films are short. Some of them are, are you know, they're typical. All, they're all technically length. feature length. Yeah. So well, they're all, they're all One of them is only like maybe 68 minutes, but it still, still counts. Still feature um, length. Uh, the first part was the longest one, Mangrove. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's like it, two and a half hours. Yeah. And it takes place in the 1960s in uh, this uh, neighborhood in um, in England. It's, yeah. Notting, it's in Notting Hill. And, uh, uh, and it's a, a neighborhood of... Um, Immigrants from Trinidad, yeah, and they all are, you know they all have sort of their own their own patois and their mm. own way of communicating and their own dreams and it's a little bit a little bit of like a, a isolated mm. community. It's West and London, if anyone West more specific. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure if Notting Hill is accurate, but it and, is West London. Okay, yeah, um, I'm looking up. Yeah, look, look up mm. where Notting Hill is. If that's no, it is Notting Hill. Yeah, you're, you're okay, right. I'm, I'm not, right, not right. great. You're not great. We're yeah. both right. Yeah. Yes, I, all right. which I only know because there's a movie <laughs> called Notting Hill. But um, yeah. Uh, uh, this restaurant owner uh, wants to open his own restaurant, and wouldn't you know it, there are racist cops in the neighborhood who hate that. Yep. And they uh, immediately begin accusing him of, like, the restaurant of being a front for all of these criminal activities. Yeah, and they're just constantly uh, harassing him, coming yeah. in every single day. They're doing raids and stuff, yeah. uh, to the point where his restaurant is failing. And he's completely destitute, so... Uh, he and other people in the neighborhood organize a protest. Mm-hmm. They're going to go to the police station and say, stop harassing us. Wouldn't you know it? The police surround them and harass them and arrest uh, arrest uh, nine of them. And they become mm-hmm. the Mangrove Nine. This is a true story. Yeah. And the second half of the movie is just the court mm-hmm. case about how they ha- uh, the Mangrove Nine had to confront mm-hmm. the deep and horrifying systemic racism in this area. Yeah. In, and to... Uh, 
prove to the world that this was actually happening and more importantly for them to care for like a racist community to care about them yeah what i appreciate first of all it's it's a a corkingly tense tensely made drama uh, the director Steve McQueen had previously made films like Hunger and and uh, Shame, and those are like very subdued uh, subdued movies, mm-hmm. very very brutal, very terse. Well, he also movies. did Twelve Years, 12 a, Years slave. a Slave. He did uh, 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 what was that uh, that uh, heist movie? He did uh, Widows. Oh right, he did which Widows is as well. which is a, a theoretically like a thrilling heist movie, but it's actually like mm. a very terse like yeah. a, a film about local politics like <laughs> right is that wonder was it in widows where the the politician gets in the the car and yeah. the camera stays in the car like they drive like into the Co- colin farrell is like a local politician and he's giving a speech in a very impoverished neighborhood talking about how we're really going to clean this place up and then in one shot he gets in his fancy car he has a conversation the conversation takes like a minute and a half mm. and then when he gets, he gets out of his he's car in he's in the fancy part of town yeah, that's like, how close they are it's like we're going to take, great take care of this area it's the same area it's great storytelling <laughs> it's it's really good stuff yeah. uh, but it, that's not a like, widows isn't thrilling it's, it's not, not like a fun, fun movie there's like a couple of thrilling uh, bits but it's not like an and, exciting adventure yeah and, and steve mcqueen is really great at you know sort of pulling all of this sort of terse misery out of things yeah. but so i feel like the small axe movies was the first time he really kind of got energetic as a well, filmmaker yeah, because mangrove is a film about like uh, uh legal and police prosecution uh, persecution sorry yeah. Uh, but it's actually very hopeful, and mm. I think a lot of the other films well, in that cycle are too. What I appreciate about uh, the characters who play the, the Mangrove Nine, all Letitia Wright is, the, I think, the she's biggest, a lawyer. The, she's like the biggest star in the movie, too. Oh, yeah, I think. She's, um, yeah, she's really good in it too. Oh, uh, she's excellent. Yeah. Um, but it's also well, who is it? It's uh, Sean Parks, Malachi Kirby's in it. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's really good people uh, in there. Uh, what the film has in spades, and I love movies that actually possess this as a quality, is righteous indignation. Yeah, uh, these. The, the people are never shrinking. They're never victims. They never feel like they have to play by some rules to get something yeah. done. They have dignity. They have dignity and they have anger. Yeah. And they let that dignity and anger carry it through. And yeah. and it's that it carries through to the end is really kind of a, a pretty glorious message. I, I honestly think that I, I, Mangrove is so fucking good. There's a there's a I, you can't I can't use this test all the time. But there's a, a litmus test I, I sometimes apply uh, to a movie when the opportunity comes around to, to do this. Um, if I'm exhausted and I'm ready to fall asleep, uh-huh. but if I like try, like, oh god, well, I gotta try to watch this movie. And I try to watch a movie and it keeps me awake no matter how tired I am. <laughs> like it's that. That's that Mangrove. Yeah. That's how good Mangrove is. Mangrove is, I'm so glad you thought of it. <laughs> I, wasn't, I, was, I wasn't thinking of Small Axe as a legal cycle and then I, I should have mm-hmm. zeroed in more because it, I would have totally picked this. Um, I firmly believe that if Small Axe had been released, all the films have been released in theaters. I think Lover's Rock may have been too hip for the room. Mangrove, I honestly think, would have been a front runner for Best Picture. It yeah. is so fucking satisfying and yeah. so rich with detail and got so many wonderful characters and moments in it. And th- this is a great fucking pick. I love this movie. I'm so glad it's on the list now. Make ah, <laughs> It's so good. And what bothers me about Small Lights is it got a lot of acclaim when it came out, but because Amazon 
made silly choices with award season. They didn't submit mm. it for the Academy Awards. And then by or the time the they, Well, they did they did submit it for the Emmys, but by the mm. time the Emmys came along, that was like a year later and all of the inertia had had fallen away. Oh. And they didn't they they were completely overlooked and it didn't even get like that like award season push anywhere. Mm. That usually raises the profile of a, of a project like this, yeah. uh, which is a damn shame. So any excuse to talk about Small X, I'm excited for, so I love it. Um, my next pick, uh, I talked about how the verdict is very not Hollywood. Hmm. My next pick is very Hollywood, <laughs> but it is, I think this is one of the very best Hollywood, hmm. you know, Big star, big big director. Well, I, uh, I already talked about cases. Anatomy of a Murder, but you yeah. said you didn't see well, that. I one, didn't so. see that one, so I can't speak to that. So I'm not saying it's the only one, but I do think that a few good men. Okay. It's a bit of a cliche now because a lot of the moments have become super famous mm. and been quoted and memed. What you, am I, a freaking minor bird? Yeah, like if you watch it again, though, like uh. if you like th- th- ignore the clips, ignore all the millions of parodies of the ending. Mm. The, the, they parody the ending because the ending is instantly iconic, right? Because it works. My my favorite bit was on the the critic, the animated yeah. series, yeah, where they have the climax from A Few Good Men, but instead of Tom Cruise, it's Christian Slater. Oh yeah, and, <laughs> it's and, and, so Christian Slater like, at the time was considered like like a, a trying, junior trying Jack I, Nicholson, imitate Jack Nicholson, and yeah. and uh, <laughs> William Devane was the stenographer who also talks a little bit like Jack Nicholson. <laughs> and, you can't handle the truth. I can handle the truth. Hey, read that back, stenographer. They can handle the truth. Like they just they all sound, it's the same voice actor. It's, it's a great bit. But hmm. the reason that ending works because the rest of the movie is really, really good. And I would actually say that I think this is still Aaron Sorkin's best screenplay. Okay. Uh, the movie is about uh, a murder uh, that takes place at Guantanamo Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a young soldier who had been uh, basically made very unwelcome. Uh, was killed in his bunk, and they try to make it look like uh, they're they're trying to hide it. But basically, what happens is two guys who were responsible for teaching this guy a lesson, uh, hazing in a very uh, shitty militaristic way, uh, and they went too far. Uh, Tom Cruise is responsible. He's a he's a uh, the Navy is responsible for like legal proceedings and stuff like this, and he is responsible for defending these guys and trying to find a way uh, to get them off. But uh, they're both very immersed in military culture. They don't want to get a deal. They don't want to get uh, use any cheap tactics. They believe in the core and what they did. And along the way, he runs afoul of uh, the I think he's a general. Uh, he, uh, he's a colonel, Colonel Nathan Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson, uh, and he runs Guantanamo Bay, and he runs it with an iron fist, and they hate each other immediately, (laughs) because they both think they're cock of the walk, and both of them think the other one is cock of nothing, and they just, it's, it's good, because, like, Tom Cruise's, like, kind of movie star persona, I will suck up all the oxygen in this room, Mm Jack Nicholson won't let him do that. <laughs> That's Jack Nicholson. Mm. He he can he can suck anything. Well, that came out weird. He's, <laughs> he's 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 way more powerful an actor a than few Tom good Cruise. Men. Jack Nicholson can suck anything. Says William Bibiani. Well, he's he's amazing. Is my point. Yeah. He's he's really amazing in this movie, and he's playing a guy who is who thinks he's larger than life. So his larger than life performance is perfect. And along the way, I think Aaron Sorkin does a really excellent job. Rob Reiner directed this. Aaron Sorkin wrote it. Uh, Aaron Sorkin, I think, does an excellent job of planting the seeds of everyone's downfall and Mm -hmm. creating a murder mystery where 
the clues are all there. Sometimes they're really, really obvious, but the thing is, how do you prove anything? And that's a different system. It's not about a private detective pointing a finger and saying, you, you're the murderer. We actually have to prove it in a court of law. Mm-hmm. And we've talked before about how, like, a, a, in real life, a courtroom case almost never has that moment where someone fucks up on the stand right. and, like, confesses to a crime mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, and I think Aaron Sorkin had crafts through just the execution of excellent character work, a situation in which you buy it, you buy this really dramatic ending. It is intensely satisfying. It makes sense within the context of the story. If you just watch the clip, it seems a little broad. In the context of the story, it's perfect. <laughs> like, it's exactly the way the movie needs to end. And the movie still doesn't give you, like, the mega happy ending. There's actually, like, a lot of, like, it's like, okay. Cool, you know, we, we this could have ended worse, but also, like, these people's lives are ruined, and that's just part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's actually a pretty earnest film in that regard. Um, the, the cast is great. Rob Reiner directs the shit out of it. Uh, it's a really just rock-solid legal thriller, and I feel like it's sometimes... I don't think it's overlooked. I think a lot of people respect it, but I think it's become its final scene so much Mm -hmm. that we sometimes forget that there's more to the movie and it's actually a really good movie. Yeah. 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 Um, There's a a scene in this movie that um, actually uh, Sarah Vowell pointed out to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sarah Vowell, um, commentator, radio host. Written uh, quite a few great books about history. Yeah. Yeah. did you interview her? Uh, uh, no, just I, I in one of her books. Oh, okay. okay. She, she wrote an essay on right. Tom Cruise in one of her books, and ah. she pointed out that there's this actually uh, iconic scene in A Few Good Men that has nothing to do with the climax. It's where uh, he's having um, a conversation with Demi Moore. Yeah. And it's like during a baseball game or something. Mm. And Rob Reiner decided to shoot that scene where they're just sort of delivering exposition, where uh, he's on one side of a chain link fence and she's on the other mm-hmm. to separate, not just sort of like their, the moral divide, but also uh, in a way to sort of highlight Tom Cruise's personality, not just mm. in that movie, but I think him as an actor yeah, and how isolated he tends to be from all the other characters. Yeah. It, and it was wise of you to point out that, Facing putting Tom Cruise in a room with Jack Nicholson mm-hmm. will prove that he will be shouted down. I, you, I think it's not a coincidence that Tom Cruise is actually very careful about his co-stars because yeah. he can be overwhelmed. Absolutely, he's a movie star who can be shouted down. Yeah, yeah, you because be he's careful. kind of isolated yeah. and he and, wants to put himself in this position and can say stay that way. But in this particular instance, it works because Nicholson has to have the upper hand. He's a fucking colonel; like he's mm-hmm. more important yeah. than Tom Cruise, and he knows it. And this fucking lawyer who thinks he's hot shit is not going to impress him. And that's going to piss Tom Cruise's character off. And towards the end of the movie, he's got to find a way to use that cockiness against Jack Nicholson. Mm. It's a it, The casting is elevating this movie okay. dramatically. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's really, really good. Mm. I love this movie to pieces. Uh, I haven't seen it for a while. Okay. It's, it's one I need. I, re- I, re- I mean, I remember liking it, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it since its original release well, it's in the, pretty the good. early 90s. Well, it's so. pretty good. Uh, and I, you know, I was a kid then, so yeah, I yeah. probably would absorb it a lot differently these days. Yeah. Uh, okay, we each have two more. Okay. Um, all right. The, my last two are gimmies. You, mm-hmm. you know these two, and these are good. These are going to be the only two we overlap on. I'm sure. I, I don't know. Actually, I, I, right. I, I, I pulled a weird one. Oh, I pulled a fast uh, one. I think this, I think we have one overlap. I'm not sure we have two. All right. It's, I'm curious. Oh. 
You didn't choose like some science fiction. Thing, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> I think I think you'll like what I did, but I'd be very surprised if you. I, I, I know what one of your favorite movies is, and I suspect I know what one of your two, what your one of your last two is. Um, is one of your last two To Kill a Mockingbird? No. Okay, shame on you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> an unforgettable film about growing up in a climate of racial hatred. Uh, yeah, To Kill a Mockingbird uh, yeah. is. Here's what I like about To Kill a Mockingbird, and I don't need to talk a lot about it because you probably read it in school. It's on a lot of mm. uh, reading lists in probably every junior high. It's in the considered world. one of the quote unquote great American novels. Yeah, I mean, it won yeah. a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, Harper Lee yeah. famously uh, never wrote again. No, yeah. no, um, not that, that. Never that, wrote a sequel. Never, that's for never, sure. never wrote a sequel that was published with maybe some dodgy permission. Uh, I know Harper Lee wrote the book uh, *To Kill a Mockingbird* was a huge hit. They made it into a movie shortly after. Uh, Very quickly, it was a big, yeah, big hit, which happened a lot more frequently in in movies uh, back in the day. They would well, adapt yeah. books to screen. Well, a lot, book, a lot books more were. I mean, books are still a big deal, but like books were more of a dominant force. Books mm. and plays. Yeah. So yeah. like more books and plays would be like, oh, it's a hit book. We got to turn into a movie immediately. Yeah, yeah. Whereas that only happens once in a while. Now that a book is so huge that a movie studio just snaps it up and decides to make it into a marquee picture. Yeah, like right away. Yeah, yeah it's, it's e- less e- common. Even with a big hit like like Harry Potter. Like that was around for like five or six years, years before. Well, that, that, that one admittedly was a slow growing hit. Like it wasn't like it was a blockbuster right out the gate. It built mm-hmm. with like word of mouth. But yeah. like still, once people knew that one was a big deal, they jumped on it. Yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, To Kill a Mockingbird, they jumped on right away. And... Uh, <clears throat> It, it, you, you know the story. It's about Scout Finch, young girl, being raised in in a racist South, but she's very very young and doesn't quite absorb all of the hatred in the air around her. She's more concerned with kid stuff. Yeah, you know, dra- dressing up for a, a pageant, that kind of thing, and yeah. you know, just sort of playing around. And she also has the best father in the world. Um, <laughs> As a father, I now I res, I've come to resent To Kill a Mockingbird because I'll never live up to Atticus Finch. No one ever will. <laughs> I got to interview Cecilia Peck once, Gregory Peck's daughter, and ask like, okay, so I mean he's just your dad, but he's known as like the greatest dad in the world. You know what? What do you see on the screen, and how is it different from your dad? She's like, oh, I just saw my dad on screen. Yeah, so he's just acting. Yeah, um, yeah Atticus, it's got to have a little less grandeur when it's just your dad it's just pretend- your dad my yeah. dad pretended to be someone else for a couple of hours it's pretty good yeah and uh, yeah. Uh, Cecilia Peck who, who was uh, grew up and acted in like uh, that raunchy vampire comedy um not once uh, bitten that was Lauren Hutton I was, um, uh, was I think uh, it was my best friend as a vampire I, I think uh, you're right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. uh yeah, Gregory, Peck's, Gregory Peck's daughter and uh, yeah. Gregory Peck's son Ethan Peck is now Spock so they, they both got into acting neat um yeah, Atticus Finch uh, is Christ-like in his compassion, uh, and he is constantly giving Scout nothing but good advice, life advice. Walk around in other people's shoes, be compassionate, think about others. And she doesn't know what he does during the day, and it turns out what he does during the day is uh, he's a lawyer, and s- uh, over the course of the film, she eventually uh, sneaks into the courtroom and gets to see what he's working on. And it turns out uh, a local man has been accused of sexual assault, and uh, and he maintains his innocence because Atticus Finch is defending him. You know he's innocent. Yes. 
Also, he's a black man in a racist society, and he's being accused by a white woman. Yeah. Which taps into a large, large can of worms yep. in terms of uh, legal racial dynamics that have been incredibly pervasive throughout the United States since its inception. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to encourage you to watch it, but there's a because I think you shouldn't. But there's uh, that's one of the major themes of D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. This notion that the black man is here to attack the white woman uh, is uh, a... I, I can't even call it a cliche. It's just a sad reality of how uh, bu- uh, black people were treated in this country. And we get to see it play out on the legal front. And we have the world's best lawyer and world's best dad, Atticus Finch, to assure everyone that he is on the side of justice and racism in society is the worst possible rot. Yeah. Um, it's great. It is. It's a great book. Um, I mean, that, like, what, what can I say? It's a great book. It's an astoundingly faithful adaptation. Yeah. Um, Hollywood didn't used to be quite so precious with its adaptations. Mm-hmm. Like, it would actually, like, dramatically change things if it felt they would make a better movie or they were trying to censor mm-hmm. something. And, you know, it was the 1960s. Civil rights were becoming uh, more of... Uh, they were becoming not just like well, an issue, re- an issue. Reaching, reaching like a fever pitch. At yeah, that point. I yeah. think that's what I'm, what I'm trying to get yeah. at right now. It was it was an inescapable news story for mm-hmm. for a lot of yeah. people who many of whom were very racist and would have preferred to escape that news mm-hmm. story. And so they were able to They're not uh, even a news story. It's an old story. Yeah, like well, yeah. But like my point is this: they they were they I think in the 60s they had the they were able to tackle this in a way that they probably couldn't have mm-hmm. in the 50s or right. the 40s or the 30s. Like so, now was the time to to do a story like this in Hollywood and um they're cowards we're not doing it sooner and, but oh, and it, regardless it, it, it's yeah. it's worth noting that uh this it doesn't take place in the present it takes place yeah. in the 30s also uh, mm-hmm. also noteworthy um the cast to a one exceptional mm-hmm. uh i th- who directed this was it um that's the thing you don't know do you not nah, yeah, i forget it's, it's uh robert mulligan is the name of the director yeah. and robert mulligan it, for some reason is not a household name yeah. Like, we don't know Robert Mulligan's, like... They're just... What did they... I know they did something else that I that I liked. What did they do? They did uh, Summer, Summer 42. Summer 42, if you saw that one. Um, um, same time next year. The, the uh, Man in the Moon. My parents really liked that movie. The, the one with Reese Witherspoon. That, that was is. her first movie, yeah. Um, God, I feel like there's something else. Uh, up the Down Staircase. Mm-hmm. No, a lot, shit, so, maybe a, not. A lot, I don't know. a lot of, like, high-profile right. dramas in, like, like the Noteworthy 70s, films, but, like, like, yeah. 60s and 70s, but, yeah, film... The kinds of because we're not talking about those kinds of films as blockbusters today, we don't yeah. talk about these kinds of movies at all. They're Clara's kind of Heart. That was the other one. I was You've seen Clara's Heart. That's not okay. Clara's Heart as a kid. Yeah, that's um, a Whoopi Goldberg movie. It is. Um, but yeah, this is the movie he did that is legendary and with good cause. Uh, it's exceptionally well told. Gregory Peck is. It's another one where it's almost like a few good men. His the goodness of Atticus Fitch is almost a cliche, and you almost yeah. want to roll your eyes at it. But then you watch the movie and you realize that his goodness isn't come from some kind of beatific perfection where he can do no wrong, and he everyone just sort of like ah oh, Atticus Fitch, please tell us what we're doing wrong with our lives. Like he has to work at it, and he doesn't always know what to tell his children, but he does his best and. There's that great bit where he has to prevent a lynch mob from basically killing the guy, and it's like it's heavy. Uh, great fucking movie. Mm-hmm. Great fucking movie. Um, I didn't include it because I knew you would. <laughs> That's fair. And I had a little freedom. Uh, I did my my number two pick is a film I suspect is your number one. 
Uh, and it's a film that I famously, for mm. people who've listened to this podcast, when people say like, hey, what's a big movie you haven't seen? I hadn't seen until mm. recently, but when we were doing this, and I was like, okay, fine. I gotta see 12 Angry Men. <laughs> you gotta see 12 Angry Men. So I saw 12 Angry Men, mm. and uh, guess what? Mm. It's fucking great. Isn't it just? It's a really, really good movie. I have one issue with it, and I'll talk about it in a mm. second, but it's not the movie's fault. Right. Um, 12 Angry Men, if you've never seen it, it was Sidney Lumet's, I think it was directorial debut for features, right? Uh, I, believe well, I believe it was. Uh, so it's 1957 this movie yeah. came out. Uh, and uh, it is takes place almost entirely, basically the, the camera walks into uh, a jury deliberation room, and then at the end of the movie it walks out. The rest of the movie is in this one mm. tiny room. During a heat wave. During a heat wave, everyone's um, sweating up a storm, and they're miserable, and they hate each other, and they all want to get out of here early. A lot of these thick-necked white guys and yeah. uncomfortable-looking shirts. Yeah. A bunch of a bunch of white dudes uh, who all want to leave, and mm. all of whom, with one exception, think they they know how they're going to vote. This here. is an open and shut. This case, is, yeah. is they, they, we don't see the trial. We only hear about it through. Uh, their recollection of the trial when they revisit the evidence and the and the testimony sometimes they quote it but uh, the the trial is of a a young man uh, who they never say uh, whether he's uh, black or Latino. No, we, or, we see him. We, we but they there's never. There's a shot. There's a shot of him at the beginning. Oh, they do. Yeah, we we see that. I'm never thinking of the play. Oh, in the play, yeah, yeah we the don't play see him really, in the play. In yeah. the film, we see him. Okay, but the idea is they don't go into great uh, uh, detail mm. over... The important thing is that a lot of these people are racist. Yes. And it's not... And they never say in dialogue, well, specifically... Well, one one guy does, but... Well, I, uh... <laughs> I feel like they're always alluding to it. I, mean, I only saw it the once. You've seen it many times. Okay, yeah. Um, regardless, people are racist. People are classist. He's also from a poor part of town. Mm. And they're just eager to say this guy killed this guy and we're done. And of course, of course, he killed this guy. On the, the evidence, people do that him. all they, the time in that neighborhood. They, they found uh, they found a, a, a murder, murder weapon, weapon that yeah. uh, is rather specific. It's a very specific weapon. Somebody saw him buying it. He yeah. did, he uh, the uh, alleged yeah. murderer admits to buying it, and then he can't find it later on. It was yeah. just it was buried in his father's chest. Yeah, there's a there was a, an yeah. argument. Somebody yeah. saw him fleeing the building. Like yeah. all of this evidence is is pointing against him. And it sounds like when people when they're talking about the the, the trial at the beginning of the film, it does sound open and shut mm. based on what we're hearing. And then they decide, okay, let's have a quick vote. Let's just see where we're all standing here. Maybe we can just all you know leave now. And everyone votes guilty. Except for Henry Fonda. <laughs> Henry Fonda, who I assume is playing a descendant of his character in the Oxbow incident and won't let this shit happen again. Uh, Henry Fonda uh, is not sure. That's what he says. He says. I don't think if he's innocent, but we're supposed to decide this case based on whether there's any reasonable doubt. And I have some doubts. And so they're like, okay. Let's hash it out. And over the course of a movie which takes place pretty much in real time, uh, he talks about all the various elements of the case that seem open and shut, but if you actually think about it, there's a lot of reasonable doubt. There's yeah. a lot of little... Maybe not one thing in and of itself would have been enough mm. to make the case seem less than certain, but it's a whole bunch of little stuff. Mm. And over time, gradually over the course of the film, the dominoes start to fall and individual members of the jury uh, decide to change their vote. But some of them are just 
too racist, yeah, uh, too hateful, and you're not sure because here's the thing: if this this because this is not a very well tried case, mm-hmm. and because Henry Fonda is doing a better job of defending this guy than his own lawyer did. If this is a hung jury, there's going to be another trial. The kid's almost certainly going to be, yeah. be executed. And, so and that's, there's that's a lot riding here. Is the, the, yeah. death, the death penalty is on the table. Yeah, here. and they, the, the judge even says, and I'm, I'm not sure, like, he says this this case carries a mandatory death sentence. If you find him guilty, he is going to be executed. Yeah, which which I'm, that, that feels like a plot contrivance. That feels yeah. like a, that. I, I mean, that might be a thing. If yeah, so, that's I, fucked up. But like, it, I mean, the, they make it. They make it. Very clearly articulated to be a plot device, whether or not there's any reality behind that. Yeah. So, so this the, the the ordinarily in a case like this, if two people were just completely at odds and no one could be convinced, you would say, "Okay, we're on jury." Hmm. Yeah, we, we 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 tried to figure it out. We tried to come to a consensus. We couldn't, and that's a thing that you yeah. can do. But here, that's not allowed. You need a consensus at the end of this movie, or the movie doesn't end. Right. Um. And yeah, it's about just. Just the deliberation. A uh, mm. lot, lot of great character actors as oh, we go yeah. around. The the guy I was talking about, the uh, mm. like this one guy who just sort of stands up and gives a racist rant like mm. near the end of the movie. It's just the one where everyone turns their backs yeah, on yeah, him everybody gets just, up and turns their backs He's so damn on. racist yeah, that even um, people who are racist are like, I don't yeah, know. That, that's, that's Ed Begley Sr. Yeah. Um, uh, Martin Balsam is the, the foreman. Nobody gives their real names. Yeah, they're like, all juror number people, one, juror number two. Some people say their names. There's a but, couple yeah, we learn over the course of the film, but yeah. in general, it's like it's like finding out like Mr. Orange's name in Reservoir Dogs. We're not supposed to know their names. Yeah. We're supposed to they're supposed to be relatively anonymous. Um, yeah, uh, I think it's juror number two is played by John Fielder, whose voice you'll recognize. He played Piglet in the Winnie the Pooh cartoon. Yeah, uh, he was also possessed by the ghost of Jack the Ripper in a Star, <laughs> in Star Trek, Trek episode. Trek, yeah. Which what the fuck was that? That's a that's a fun dumb episode. That's uh, a very very silly episode of Star Trek. Lee J. Cobb is fantastic in this movie. Yeah, Jack Warden's really good in this movie as a guy who's just who's only What's mad because he's missing a baseball game. Yeah. game. Like, oh god. Uh, yeah. Um, another character, and yeah, mm. the the one holdout and the actual end, uh, like the final rivalry in this movie is between yeah. Juror Number A, which is Henry Fonda, and Juror Number Three, who is Lee J. Cobb. Yeah, and. Uh, Lee J. Cobb, who seems really open at the beginning of the story and seems really approachable, mm. uh, I have never seen anger done better in a he's, movie he's than Lee J. Cobb in Twelve Angry Angry Men, and yeah. they're all angry. He wants to. It's it's interesting at the beginning of the movie, everyone's being polite, mm. but when you reframe the movie after you know what you know about him and the other jurors, you mm. realize that at the start of this, when he's talking about like, oh, yeah, this is a pretty open and shut case, we'll just uh, kill this guy guilty. He's not just saying that the case is open and shut he wants to kill mm. he wants this young man killed and he mm. wants to be the one who does it he wants to be partly responsible for this person's death mm. that's what we have that's who we have to convince to change their verdict from guilty to innocent which brings me to my one issue with this movie mm. i feel that this movie is a really beautiful movie about people who are gradually, and in different ways, which I appreciate, Hmm. uh, convinced to change their mind. Yeah. Which is a very hard thing to do in general. I feel like watching this now, I'm not sure, like, if this movie were made now, 
And like this, was, I'm not sure I would believe that juror number three could be convinced to change his mind about anything. It, it's, it's. I'm a, honestly not. I honestly, I'm losing my faith in the capacity of human yeah. beings, at least some human beings, for shame. Yeah. And yeah. I'm honestly the, uh, not convinced that shame would be such a powerful device that people would be self-aware enough and uh, earnest enough and want to be a better yeah. person enough for every single person in that room. To change their verdict. I honestly not sure I'd buy it now. Uh, I I buy the 1957 version. Of yes. It now. I think uh, everybody everything's pretty perfect in this movie. Uh, no surprise. It is my number one. Yeah. Uh, it's great. So I it's, get it. Yeah, I totally get I, it. I feel like yeah. this is kind of required viewing for American citizens, mm-hmm. uh, especially if the one if you're called for jury duty, mm-hmm. how you actually need to sort of take this job seriously. You desperately and need to take it seriously. Be part of be yeah. part of the the court system because this isn't meant to be a system where we feed people in and just sort of drop them into an execution machine. Mm-hmm. First of all, uh, just just to state it explicitly, I uh, vehemently oppose the death penalty. Yep, same. Uh, and uh, the notion that we treat the death penalty so flippantly and mm-hmm. jury duty is supposed to be something you get out of yeah. uh, is pretty sad. And I think a lot of people, a lot of lawyers mm-hmm. are counting on this and a lot of courts are counting on this. A lot of private prisons are counting on this. Yep. Uh, there is a great deal of horrendous injustice. And 12 Angry Men is a beautiful, you might call it a fantasy, mm-hmm. about how the way the system is kind of supposed to work. Yeah, you want people to, you if God forbid, you're ever in mm. a jury trial, you're a defendant in a jury trial, and your jury goes out to deliberate, you want them to take it seriously. You, you want them, want to, them to consider like, yeah. the possibility of your innocence and actually really look over the details, even the ones that didn't even necessarily come up in the case. You want people who are thoughtful to try to do it the right way. Because people who just want to get out of here, like mm. you would have in like a movie like The Runaway Jury... That's not uh, that's not conducive to a healthy legal system, which is one of the reasons why one of the great, I think, unsung injustices of the legal system is that uh, we make it incredibly difficult for people to be jurors. Mm. We don't that people that need to take time off of work and they can't always afford to. Yeah. So the option of being a juror and being a part of the legal system is sometimes literally untenable. Mm. And that's not conducive to a good jury system where everyone is trying to get out of it because they can't survive. And that's, Some of them yeah. can, but most of them can't. And you know the way it works in the United States. If you're not from here, you get. Yeah. Actually, I'm not even sure if it's the same state to state. Yeah, uh, but in California. Anyway. In California, anyway, you're called for jury duty uh, every couple of years. Yeah, yeah. There's a limit. I think it's. I think it's two. I think you can't. I think it, once you serve your, you're you're called to jury duty. You're, you're given you're, dates, and if those dates are inconvenient, you can change it a certain number of times. Yeah, you can push it back. I think three times before you have to three start max. actually uh, yeah. coming in. And then uh, and then what happens is they say, okay, here's what happens. You're you're on you're on call for this week. Uh, so like on Sunday. Call, you, no, you Sunday, to, Sunday night after 7.30, yeah. you call a number and you... Yeah. Uh, or or there's an, you can check the internet. And now, they'll yeah. inform you if you have to go in the next day. And yeah. uh, if you don't have to go in all week, you're off the hook. Yeah, you got to check in every single day. If you're called, you go to the courthouse yeah. uh, of, of your county or whatever mm-hmm. it is. and um, First thing in the morning. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and you have to wait there to see if you're going to be called to sit on a jury. Yeah, and, and you might not be. If, they're, yeah. if they release you, that's it. That's your jury duty. They can't call you for, I think, at least a year, maybe two. Uh, but if you get called to be on a jury... You might be there a while. You might still might not get on a jury. You know they have more people than they need on so that there can be a selection process. Uh, I've never been selected for a jury, but I've gone through like the sort of questioning process. 
Uh, and uh, then I, I was I was removed. Uh, but um, yeah, it's it's a lot, and it's again, it's very intrusive to your daily life if you actually have things like you know job, family, whatever. And so, yeah, I understand the characters in this movie who are eager to get out of there. Mm. But we're here, and we have to take it seriously. And Henry Fonda is just playing like the conscience of the nation, the conscience of the entire legal system. Where it's just like, I don't care where you want to be right now. Mm. Someone will die. Someone's life is on the line. In this case, literally, we have to take this seriously, and we have to actually seriously consider the evidence. And as they mm. do, people change their mind. Uh, it is it is the absolute like best example of how it's supposed to work. Yeah. Uh, and I agree with you, which is why my... And this is your number one. It's my number one. Which, so yeah, only this is my number one. And my number one, very different people sometimes, you and I, uh, is uh, a system as it is not supposed to work. Okay. And indeed, uh, it is a story of absolute martyrdom in a sham court. Uh, I am speaking of Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc. Oh, I'm surprised. All right. Yeah. I, I Part of me thought you were going to say Defending Your Life. Because oh, I know I you're, a, I know you're a big fan of defending that's your a life. Fun, you know what? That's a fun idea, and right. I wish I had thought of that. Right. That might have that might have snuck in. That's a good one. But I wasn't thinking about that because it wasn't like real uh, court case. Fun though, I like that. No, uh, Passion of Joan of Arc uh, is a silent film from 1928, um, starring oh, what's her name? Um, uh, Maria Falconetti. Yes, Maria Falconetti. I think it's her only performance. Yep. She is riveting. Uh, Basically, it's the story of the trial of Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc, uh, rather famously, was a young woman who believed that God had told her to fight for France. She successfully did for a while, but eventually she was captured by England. The war was between England and France. And uh, she believed that uh, God told her to fight the English. And as you can imagine, the English didn't believe her. <laughs> so they put her on trial, essentially for witchcraft, and basically, at the very least, you know, sacrilege. And uh, they're saying, like, this is a lie. Just tell us you lied. Tell mm. us they told you to say this. Tell us you're just a figurehead. Renounce your bullshit visions. And she refuses to do so. Mm. And she refuses to do so. And then they threaten to torture her, and she refuses to do so. And it is a story about uh, basically having the entire pressure of a, it's a medieval legal system, but a legal system hmm. designed specifically to kill you, specifically to kill you or get you to renounce literally every single thing you believe in. You will either die literally at the stake or you will die inside because you have nothing left. And then die at the stake. And then they, probably they, die they, at the they, stake, they too. Yeah. Anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is a film about taking a principled stand against a corrupt system. And it is... Not, it, not, not even principled in her case. Divine. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, you can look at it both ways. Like, mm -hmm. if, you, if you take it literally, mm -hmm. and you believe that Joan of Arc was indeed chosen by God, or if you believe in just God in general, um, you, then, yeah, this is a story about religious persecution, and that's a great story. Um... If you don't, and you believe that she just simply believes this, that is more of a matter of principle, which is more how I take it. But either way, it's incredibly effective. Uh, Dreyer shoots the shit out of this movie. Oh. I, this well, is one of the most dynamic, you know, uh, uh, silent movies you're ever going to see that isn't like a German expressionist weird phantasmagoria. There's there's a lot of uh, close-ups in this mm -hmm. movie, of faces. Mm -hmm. um, 
in a lot of shots, it's just sort of like a close-up of face or a, like a, a, a panel yeah. of people against the, sort of like a plain white background. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everything's very stark. Uh, yeah. and, you're, and, and very immediate. You're in their face yeah, the entire and, time, yeah. And Maria Falconetti is like stare, staring off into the divine space. And uh, yeah, yeah. The, just the way they shoot her and the textures of, yeah, of her face. It's kind of low angle like shot as she's like looking up mm-hmm. and like, you know, praying to God. And, yeah. yeah, the single tear falls. She's just an amazing performance. So great. And all of the, uh, all of like the panel of judges, like they're almost like goblins. Like they have this really ghoulish quality uh, that makes this feel like in certain segments, like a horror movie. It is. It is very much a horror movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's because again, this is a story about someone who, uh, in case you don't know how history works, Joan of Arc did not end great. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, there's an episode of the Simpsons where they did a parody of basically this film uh, where Lisa Simpson was uh, Joan of Arc. And then, mm-hmm. You know, this happened and it ended badly. And she's about to be like uh, uh, burned at the stake, and she's like, "Well, surely my God will save me, right? <laughs> right?" And then it cuts to like Lisa, like hearing them read the book, because it's one of those anthology episodes. And she's like, "And then Joan of Arc was okay, right?" And Marge's like, "Yes, yes, she was." And then Sir Lancelot rode up on a white horse and <laughs> saved Joan of Arc, and they got married, and everything was fine. Everything was fine, okay? Everything was fine. <laughs> There've been some good Joan of Arc movies over the years. Yeah. Um, this is the best one. Oh, by far. This is uh, this is one of the great movies. Don't see that Luc Besson one. Oh, it's so weird. <laughs> good cinematography. Like, it's a good looking well, film. They like, turned turn the Joan of Arc story into like this weird action picture. Badass uh, action film. Yeah, which I mean, it's a war story. It is yeah. an element of that, I guess. But uh, now this one, this one boils it all down. Like the what? What is at the heart of Joan of Arc? It's about a young girl who claims she saw God. Hmm. Do you believe her? What what it boils down to is she believes and she's willing to... And there's a moment in the movie, a moment of doubt. Mm. There's a moment where she thinks to save herself. And then she decides to undo that because it's the right thing to do. That mm. is how righteous she is. Yeah. Uh, and it is just... It's this moment where you're like, oh, thank God. I know it's a historic, but I guess they gave this a mega happy ending. And it's been so oppressive. I'm honestly just so happy for Joan of Arc in this version of Venge. No, Joan, don't do it. What are you doing, Joan? No, God, why? You need know, like a revisionist version of this, where she yeah. just like whips out a sword and kills everybody. Uh, it'd and be on great. The and... <laughs> it would be exciting. Um, no, this is this is one of the great movies. Just period. Uh, I, it's a silent movie that I know some people are reticent to, to watch silent movies if they're kind of told in a different storytelling language than we're used to now mm. and it takes a little getting used to but I think in the case of The Passion of Joan of Arc it's so intense and so immediate and the story is so forthright uh, that I think anyone can appreciate this and I think anyone can understand just how uh, incredible this film is so this is this is my favorite uh, I'm embarrassed that I didn't think of it because I think yeah. this is one of the great movies I, I rather thought just it was in ra- general that was rather clever when I thought of it like <laughs> ooh wait a minute because I was like is there anything better than 12 Angry Men mm. and I was like surely there's there's something I, I will I will accept that the passion of Joan of Arc Carl Dreyer's the passion of Joan of Arc yeah Sure, it's better than Twelve Angry Men. Well, I think they're, everyone they're, should see they're, it. they're very different films. I, I'm I'm an American. I was thinking of mm-hmm. very much of the American uh, court mm-hmm. system. Most of my films are about America, the Same. American courts. Same. Man, um, Mangrove isn't, but uh, yeah, the, yeah. So that that's kind of just where my head was at. Right. Um, I'm embarrassed mm. at us, okay, for not picking Philadelphia, um, the Jonathan Demme movie. You know, um, I I didn't think of it as a thriller. Uh, um, 
it's just sort it, of a it, sad it counts drama. as much as some of the other I ones. I guess I've it had, does. I yeah. guess I guess I maybe I'm being a little uh, a little cagey on my definition of legal thriller. Oh, okay. I just thought it was more of a straight up drama. And, uh, there was yeah. and there was another one that I wanted to include, but it's not really a courtroom drama. It's just sort of about it's mm. about execution. Yeah. And it's Tim Robbins' film Dead Man Walking. Uh, oh yeah, which that's is a great movie. A really wonderful anti death penalty. That's Sean movie. Penn's best performance, man. Yeah. That's that's a Sean great Penn's movie. good. Uh, Susan Sarandon's really good, and yeah. has uh, uh, very definite things to say about the way we treat mm-hmm. uh, execution willy nilly in, in the United States. Yeah, uh, some states it's not legal. Yeah, some and states some do states not have the death it is. Yeah. It's it's really really weird in in the United States. No, it's it's um, it's, it's maddening. Is what it is. Michigan. Has never had it. Good for Michigan. Mm. Well done, I, indeed. Mich- Michigan outlawed it like really early on, and nice. it's just been illegal in Michigan ever since. Nice. Uh, it's been on and off here in California. The forms of execution, yeah, changed has, dramatically have over, changed the over the years. Changed over the years. Like what is considered like what is considered it's like a, the most uh, humane way to murder someone? What's the most humane way to kill a guy? Yeah, uh, and uh, the. the the decisions we have made regarding that are just like you think that's the humane way to do that? Yeah. Jesus Christ! Look up the way an electric chair works. Sometime. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not no, it's really, really horrifying. Um, real fast, a few, a few films that I seriously considered putting on the yeah. list and, and didn't. Uh, Orson Welles's The Trial. Which uh, the trial doesn't happen. But it's just ironic. But it's all about building up. The the whole thing is uh, uh, Anthony Perkins is accused of a crime. He's never told what it is. He's told to wait for his trial. He's told to wait for his trial, uh, but it's bad, and no one will tell him what it is. It's, I mean, it's Kafka, so it's Kafka-esque, but it's like, it's the epitome of Kafka-esque. Like, more so than Metamorphosis. Like, it's it's really great. I think it's got a bit of a cop-out ending, like, they try to make it, like, weirdly huge and whatever, but, like, it's really, I, really good. I don't know how the movie ends. I know the story ends. The movie ends with a literal explosion. Oh, wow. It's sort of like, really? Okay. Um, let's did, see. Did you ever see, um... Mm. Steven Soderbergh's Kafka biopic. No, I never did. Uh, where, where they tried to... A, a lot of... The theme of a lot of uh, Kafka stories is we never actually get to see what happens. The trial never happens in the trial. Right. And he never makes it... It's about being cast- trapped in a system, yeah, not he never, actually he never incident. Makes it, yeah. never makes it to the capital in the castle. But, yeah. um, in in Kafka, he makes it. Like, we see what's inside the castle. No, fucker. What? That's not what this is about. We don't want to see what's inside God. the castle. The point is we never get to. Yeah. Uh, a few other things. Uh, there's a really good uh, uh, another Henry Fonda film, Young Mister Lincoln, mm. which is all about uh, Abraham Lincoln back when he was a trial lawyer in a murder case. He actually he actually uh, 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 was the defense attorney for. I hadn't seen it in a long time. I remember liking it. I came this close to putting it on there. If I had a chance to rewatch it, I might have. Mm. I remember liking it a lot, but maybe it has an age grade. I don't know. Uh, Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies is a little underrated. I feel it won That's an Oscar for Mark Rylance, but the whole movie is very very good. Um, I, this one is one where the trial is only like the back half of the movie, but I like it a lot. It's Compulsion, uh, mm. which is which it stars Dean. That? It's the Dean Stockwell, Leopold and Loeb movie. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I forget. I forget who plays the other I, guy. I haven't but seen that one. But yeah. Dean Stockwell plays uh, one of the Leopold and Loeb murderers. Uh, they were also the, the inspiration for Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. They were two young men who decided to kill someone. I think it was a child, uh, just to see if they could do it. Just for the academic, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's it's incredibly monstrous, and it's one of the many things that was considered like the trial of the century, just because it was so like mind blowingly evil. And uh, Orson Welles plays um, 
think Clarence Darrow. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, he steals the whole movie once the trial begins, and he's the second half is phenomenal, but it's only like half a trial movie, so I couldn't quite uh, uh, mm-hmm. do that. Uh, Michael, Cl- Michael Clayton I like a lot, but not as much as other people do. Um, Michael Layton's fine. It's very yeah. good. I just it never made the impression. A lot of people really love that movie. I think I would have rewatched, but worthy an honorable mention. Um, let's see here. Uh, the Oxbow incident is an interesting example yeah, of mention. Well, we we were talking about this off off the off the air, but um, the Oxbow incident is about. Uh, frontier justice. It's not actually about the legal system. An actual court. It plays out. Like a legal thriller because people are debating the innocence and or and or guilt of these people who've been accused of cattle wrestling and murder, uh, but the actual legal system is not engaged, so it's got the spirit of a legal thriller, but it's mm-hmm. technically not. So yeah. I couldn't quite in good conscience do it. Underrated uh, film, I feel particularly great Kevin Bacon performance, Murder in the First, mm-hmm. uh, uh, quite good. Stars uh, Gary Oldman and Christian Slater as well, um, and um, also. Uh, um, not a great movie, but an interesting movie from William Friedkin called Rampage, which stars Michael Bean as a lawyer who is defending a serial killer mm-hmm. uh, in the 1980s. Uh, and it was inspired by, uh, I believe, a serial killer who William Friedkin uh, had interviewed in prison because he had a small role in The Exorcist. Oh, no kidding. One of the doctors oh, in The Exorcist right. yeah, yeah, yeah. was actually that. a serial killer, or at least a confessed serial killer. And William Friedkin interviewed him a few times in prison, and it was the inspiration for this movie, Rampage, which no, very overlooked. It's not one of William Friedkin's best, yeah. but it's an interesting film. Right. And I that, do that's, think it's that's one of the things people bring up about The Exorcist when yeah. they talk about that's cursed movie, because there's, yeah. there's an actual murderer in the there movie. There is. Like, it's, it's really gross. Yeah. Yeah, it's, he, like, like you said, he's a doctor. He's in one scene, but he's in it. Yeah, technically. It's weird. Anyway, that is it. Uh, real, real fast, our final lists were... Well, Whitney chose Changing Lanes. Still a great pick. <laughs> uh, the Devil's Advocate. The Firm. The Thin Blue Line. Paradise Lost. Anatomy of a Murder. Kramer versus Kramer. Mangrove. To Kill a Mockingbird. And Twelve Angry Men. I stand by it. That's a great list. I love that list. Uh, meanwhile, my top ten is Primal Fear... Went in a different direction. Primal <laughs> Fear, The Rainmaker, Runaway Jury, The Client. I've already apologized for so many John Grisham movies, but that's what I grew up with. Uh, Reversal of Fortune, Paths of Glory, The Verdict, A Few Good Men, Twelve Angry Men, only movie that overlaps, and The Passion of Joan of Arc. Uh, next time on the Iron List, and we're going to try to get to this real fast because this one's actually a bit late. We tried to do these monthly and May was rough. Uh, we have a series of films, uh, a series of topics that our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network can vote for. The poll, the poll should be up but now uh, if you're listening to this podcast in a reasonably timely manner. Uh, and the options include the best spy movies. Yeah, we actually haven't done that before. We haven't sneaking around. They're not all Bond films either. Uh, The best live action G rated movies. Very specific there. Uh, Excuse me. The best movie series. This is one we're not judging just one film. We're judging an entire series of films. Uh, The one thing we agreed on in advance is if we do this one, it's got to be more than a trilogy. It's got to be at least four feature films in a series in order to qualify for this. So we're looking at not just quality, but also quality over time in multiple films. So so, uh, films like um, 
the before movies. Yeah. Uh, the the Apu movies. Those things don't count. Wouldn't count. Exactly. Uh, which which I think is is interesting because the movies series that tend to last a long time tend to be rather populist. Yeah. And oftentimes are a little up and down. So I'm very curious to see what Whitney would pick there. Uh, there's also the best badass action movies. And this is the particular... Uh, uh, and there's some loosey-goosiness here, but basically uh, the macho action films as typified in the 1980s uh, by the ovras of, for example, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Chuck Norris, that kind of badass action movie. Uh, and then the last option is uh, the next in our ongoing series, the best films that begin with the letter F. They need to have nothing else in common. They just got to start with an F. Anyway, head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. All tiers, even $1 a month, get to vote for this and other polls that we have. Uh, we would we can't wait to see what you're going to pick, and we're looking forward to getting to it sooner than later. Uh, if you want to talk about anything you discussed in this episode, you want to share your own uh, films maybe that we missed, do we get something wrong about the legal system? We're not lawyers. Maybe we screwed something up. Mm-hmm. Please let us know. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We also have a P.O. box if you prefer to send an old-fashioned letter. Whitney, what is our P.O. box? Yeah, send it to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. We're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, until next time, that that that's the list. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.